Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mr. District Attorney, I understand you have a witness you wish to treat as hostile? I do, Your Honor. This witness is as deranged as Lafayette Wawaron, if you understand my French. You know I do, Cher. Yeah, you're right. Well, Judge, I feel like we'd pass a good time interrogating this scalawag up in this here court of law. You mind if I get started? Don't let me stand in your way. Let me just lean back with this here Erster po'boy and hurricane drink and enjoy this here testimony. I call one tremulous Silesian to the stand. Please state your name for the record. It's it's actually Fearful Jesuit, and I'm starting to regret writing you guys as such broad New Orleans caricatures. Don't worry, though. I'll eventually find a way to blame it on Oliver Stone. Carry on. Ah, Mr... Jesuit, is it not true that you run some sort of highfalutin conspiracy podcast? Excuse me, anti-conspiracy podcast. Anti-podcast? Why, gentlemen of the jury, I call your attention to the fact that this is an anti-podcast. Funny word, anti. Sounds like, oh, I don't know, maybe like the word (laughs) anti-American. Stick to the facts, Mr. Prosecutor. Sorry, Your Honor. These anti-America communists just get me matted in a Thibodeau hen at an East Texas catfight. Anyhow, Mr. Jesuit, is it not true that the majority of your fellow Americans believe that there was a conspiracy involved in the murder of the 35th president of these here United States? That is unquestionably true. 61%, according to a 2017 poll conducted by the website 538. But you would expect us to agree with you, and a tiny minority of assassination researchers, that in spite of 55-plus years of public skepticism and a mess of books, movies, periodicals, articles, conferences, lectures, music... Uh, uh, them there, uh, uh, YouTube videos and forum posts taller than the pile of trash they swept off of Boyman Street, all of which say either Oswald had nothing to do with the murder or that he had a whole bunch of help doing that shooting. You expect us to believe you when you say that boy did all that with three bullets by himself from the sixth floor of the Dallas Book Depository? Yes, but I would also admit that this time I have more of a mountain to climb in terms of proving it to the satisfaction of my audience. I mean, I still think I can do it, but it might take me a little while. No time like the present. I'm going to just take over this courtroom and present my case, okay? Order! Objection! I ask the questions here. 
Well, sure, but since you're just one-dimensional characters I wrote for this intro, I'm almost certain you're going to decide you like my idea. What? What are you doing to my... I do declare that I have no objection to Mr. Jesuit taking all the time he needs in the whole wide world to explain why these here JFK conspiracies don't amount to much more than a hill of red beans. Honestly, this dialogue is like a crime against the state of Louisiana. How about you, Your Honor? Any problem with my plan to spend a couple of hours undoing the damage that Jim Garrison, Oliver Stone, Jim Mars, and about a thousand other conspiracists have done to the real story over the past 55 years? I hereby suspend this judicial procedure to let the witness expound as much as he wants on the excellent reasons not to believe a conspiracy in this here case. Thanks. Finally, the truth about the JFK assassination gets equal time in the court of public opinion. And incidentally, wouldn't something like this have made that incredibly well-put-together yet horrifically dishonest Oliver Stone film a lot better? Or, to quote another brilliant filmmaker and, probably, real monster of the human being, Boy, if life were only like this. And that's why we created this show, where rationality, skepticism, and a sense of humor always win out. Join us, won't you, in our fantasy world composed entirely of reality. Welcome back to The Paranoid Strain. Port? Fix the mizzen. Ready the harpoons. Okay, I'll bite. What's the tortured metaphor this time? I don't care for your tone, Dana. I'm simply trying to let our listeners know that this is the big one. The Kahuna. The conspiracy Scylla and Charybdis. The Lost Ark. The Maltese Falcon. Golden Fleece. Kaiser Soze. Tyler Durden. Snuffleupagus. This is my white whale. And I'll chase him round good hope and round the horn, and round the Norway maelstrom, and round perdition's flames before I give him up. To the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. Come! Come! Stop it. No one's impressed. Look, I want a little leeway here. This is the conspiracy theory against which we skeptics are nearly powerless. The one who the majority of our fellow citizens, in fact, we'd be willing to bet even listeners to this very show, believe in. At least a little. Okay, put your heads down on your desks. No peeking. 
and only by show of hands, how many of you believe there's at least something hinky in the official story of the JFK assassination? Yeah, we thought so. That's most of you. But for this episode, we've set ourselves the significant challenge of convincing at least some doubters that in spite of all the many, many reasons you have to question the official word of any number of U.S. government mouthpieces, the mainstream conclusion is essentially accurate. Well, I wish you luck. Thanks. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, let's take a moment to acknowledge all of our return listeners and welcome new folks to the party. We all get together every couple of months to explore the rich and varied history of crankery and conspiracy thinking, its origins and effects, and its modern-day adherence. We do this because we have assigned ourselves the job of explaining why your insurance salesman, your dentist, and your shady step-uncle's second-favorite bookie constantly share such ridiculous conspiracy theories with everyone within earshot. I'm Fearful Jesuit, a man, a myth, a legend. With the help of my talented collaborators, I've now spent two full years seeking to help you make sense out of the most offensively stupid ideas your fellow citizens wholeheartedly believe in. Once you've finished with this episode, please feel free to sample the older ones from our podcast feed. From QAnon to Chemtrails, we feel like there's something in there to make every one of you say, But there's no way somebody believes that. They do, though. They really do. By the way, on the months when we don't have a new episode for you, we invite the chads from our sister podcast, Stupidland, to take our sensible, well-researched topics out for a spin. Yes, they end up crashing them into a ditch and setting them on fire, but then sometimes they roast marshmallows. It's a win-win. Please check out those contributions as well. With that out of the way, we return to the subject at hand. The Kennedy assassination holds a truly unique place in American history. Not only was it one of the most shocking and impactful moments of our shared experience, but in many ways it has served as a sort of mental dividing line for millions of older Americans who see our nation, and by extension, their lives, as split into before and after those explosive few seconds in Dallas. As we noted in our opening, the idea of a conspiracy in the murder of Kennedy is a very different thing than most of the theories we deal with on this show. Even conspiracies that make headlines, like Flat Earth, are believed by a comparatively minute percentage of the population. Though if you use YouTube a lot, you're forgiven for assuming that Flat Earthers are thick on the ground. Here, though, lone assassin three-bullet guys like me are definitely in the minority. And while we might argue as much as we like that Occam's razor, the preponderance of evidence, and the lack of a coherent opposing theory all make our position the default, it's also true that the average person has been exposed to decades, in some cases entire lifetimes, of a general, low-level hum of doubt about the official explanation of this event. After all, thousands of people have put their entire lifetimes into constructing an endlessly refracting funhouse mirror of mutually contradictory versions of the event, theories whose only point of agreement is that they disbelieve the official story. So, faithful listener, we're asking you to keep an open mind as we examine the Kennedy assassination, its historical context, its aftermath, the way that conspiracy theories grew up in its wake, and how those theories have mutated and changed in the two score and sixteen years since this traumatic event transpired. Also, as the opening may have telegraphed, we're going to use this opportunity to work out some of our remaining teenage angst about a certain movie that you're already thinking of. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Yes, that hokey, irresponsible pile of incredibly well-directed, beautifully photographed horseshit that Oliver Stone dropped on the public back in 1991, JFK. Cast your mind back 28 years ago, when a young and impressionable, yet still quite fearful, 
Jesuit was in the thick of adolescence, trying on a series of ill-fitting, rebellious poses that would hopefully signal to some apparently non-existent group of high school ladies that he was the kind of suave, long-haired, world-weary intellectual in a black trench coat and combat boots they had always dreamed of. There was, of course, the vanishingly brief Ayn Rand flirtation, the ostentatious reading of the Communist Manifesto in the cafeteria, because who cares what those straight-laced teachers think? It was all very sexy. Be still, my heart. Anywho, during various flailing attempts at finding something to rebel against, your host ran smack into Oliver Stone's new, daring, filmic conspiracy screed in his local theater, and bought it hook, line, and sinker. Yes, as much as it pains me to admit, the immediate effect was to convince my young, inexperienced, deeply credulous brain that this was the true history that the man didn't want us to know about. You know those things you did when you were a teenager that on occasion your adult brain decides, without warning, to force you to relive decades after the fact, in quick, involuntary, cringe-inducing flashbacks? Oh, this is his version of that. Of course, it all ended well enough, and, in fact, finding out what a pack of lies that movie is probably helped mold us into the scourge of all conspiracy theories that we are today. Anyway, welcome to Jesuit's Revenge. We're going to use Stone's film and a number of his wildest accusations as touchpoints as we work to convince you of a much simpler, Oswald-focused view of events. We'll also bring in the paranoid ravings of other conspiracy loons. Naturally. It's not just crazies this time, though. We'll also evaluate sane, yet still apparently wrong, pro-conspiracists, including investigative journalist Dan Moldea, whom you might remember as the anti-conspiracist hero of our discussion of the RFK assassination last episode. While we're greatly outnumbered on this topic, we've got some of the heaviest hitters on our side. We're going to depend on two truly great comprehensive anti-conspiracy tomes. First, Case Closed by Gerald Posner which emerged in the cultural wake of Stone's nonsense with a valiant attempt to set the record straight. This was, in fact, the first book that helped young Jesuits see the error of his Oliver Stone-believing ways. Also on the side of righteousness is the late Vincent Bugliosi's 1,600-page doorstop of truth, Reclaiming History. Bugliosi is most famous for his successful prosecution of the Manson family, and for the riveting Helter Skelter, his book detailing that cult's crimes, his investigation, trial, and conviction of the killers. Well, it turns out that back in the 80s, somebody at the BBC got the bright idea to finally give Lee Oswald his day in court, as so many conspiracy theorists have purported to do since Ruby's bullet stopped the wheels of justice in their tracks. Giliosi accepted the challenge of heading up the prosecution, and seems to have taken this televised mock trial as seriously as he would any real one. Reclaiming History is a distillation of the superb work he did in building an airtight case against Oswald. We're also going to heavily reference an excellent, more focused book by an author named Patricia Lambert. Her tome, False Witness, zeroes in specifically on the many, many, many sins against truth by both Stone's film and the man who inspired it, Jim Garrison. Actually, she implies that the latter sinned against far more than the truth, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Finally, a book that limbs the contours of the JFK controversy, as well as a matchless guide to the impact of the assassination and its various narratives on popular history, books, music, film, and all other aspects of the culture we currently enjoy or endure, is a slim volume called simply The Kennedy Assassination by Peter Knight. Okay, the scene is set, so listener, let's first examine what the unvarnished, evidence-based history tells us actually happened when Lee met Jack, and then another Jack met Lee. Lincoln and Drove and Love Field 
Long and black with the reaper at the front wheel Jack is in the back in a pillbox hat Jack is nervous, he's trying to relax There may be no other person so completely devoid of talent, personality, or legitimate accomplishments whose life has been so thoroughly scrutinized as Lee Harvey Oswald. Before his big moment, Oswald's had been a peripatetic and formless existence, during which he made essentially no lasting friendships, dragged an innocent young woman and, eventually two children, into a violent and nearly loveless family life, repeatedly renounced both his native and adopted homelands, and completely whiffed in his constant efforts to make a mark for himself through radical politics and impetuous, ill-conceived schemes. He was born in 1939 in New Orleans. The city where so much meaningless assassination nonsense would eventually be centered. To a father who died two months before his birth and a mentally unstable and overbearing mother. Marguerite Oswald moved Lee and her other sons to the Dallas-Fort Worth area when he was five, and then to New York City seven years later. Amid these geographic dislocations, the Oswalds were constantly resettling into different apartments and housing situations as the matriarch's employment and romantic prospects waxed and waned. Lee showed early signs of emotional disturbance, which is understandable given his mother's volatility and manipulative, passive-aggressive attitude toward her nearest and dearest. A few asides on Marguerite Oswald, our anti-conspiracy authors, and even the conspiracy-curious Mr. Knight, agree overwhelmingly that Marguerite Oswald was a key influence on her son's eventual personality problems, from both a nature and a nurture perspective. Posner characterizes her as a domineering woman, consumed with self-pity, both over the death of her husband and because she had to return to work to support Lee and her other children. And while theorists, like the original grand old man of JFK conspiracy-mongering Jim Mars, tend to downplay the importance of the formative years with Marguerite in Oswald's biography. More accurate sources paint a picture of a woman who coddled her disturbed boy's behavior even as it gradually spiraled out of control. Another son, Robert, characterized her as being self-centered, focused on her own problems to the point that she couldn't truly see Lee's many and varied issues. But while ignoring his problems, she also told him he was smarter than other kids and reinforced his idea that he was better off staying at home and reading than going to school. Thus, the loner kid became ever more isolated. In addition to his chronic truancy, Oswald's childhood is filled with charming anecdotes. For example, a neighbor named Otis Carlson was in the living room of the Oswald's home when Lee grabbed a butcher knife and began chasing after one of his brothers. Lee hurled the knife at his brother in front of a startled Carlson, but it missed and struck the wall. Marguerite's response was that her boys sometimes got in scuffles and that the neighbor shouldn't worry about it testifying after the assassination when one might assume that childhood signs like this would obviously take on increased retrospective significance, Oswald's mother, per Posner, could still find no fault with her son despite the knife incident. She said, he did not use the knife. He had an opportunity to use the knife, but it was not a kitchen knife or a big knife. It was a little knife. If she had faced it, said Robert, if she had seen to it that Lee received the help that he needed, I don't think the world would have ever heard of Lee Harvey Oswald. After the assassination, her behavior ranged from the nakedly self-serving. She almost always refused to give an interview or sit for photographs unless paid. Marina, Lee's wife, said she has a mania. Only money, money, money. Her son, John Pick, said in 1964 that money was her god. To the weirdly aggrandizing. Knight characterizes her testimony for the Warren Commission as both exasperating and grimly comic. For example, 
She suggests that her son should be given a full hero's burial in Arlington National Cemetery, where JFK was buried. Unlikely. So it seems like Lee's home life was a real nightmare. In meetings with child psychologists, he told them he had no close friends. Asked if he preferred to be around boys or girls, he indicated he hated everybody. Also, he apparently at one point mentioned to a high school acquaintance that the then-president was exploiting the working people and that if he had the opportunity, he would like to kill Eisenhower. It's unsurprising, then, that the academically moribund, frequently truant Oswald convinced his older brother to help him enlist in the Marines at 17 and get the hell away from his fraught home life. By this time, he was already obsessed with both Marxist theory and with his self-image as a vital, if not yet recognized, member of the radical proletariat vanguard. As you might expect, this attitude didn't exactly endear him to his fellow Cold War Marine enlistees, and he shortly gained a reputation as a commie simp crank. They called him Oswaldskovich. We know. It doesn't make much sense that the already Marxist Oswald would sign up for the Marines, the most gung-ho of all the American armed forces. According to Posner's case closed, Oswald had already decided to follow in his older brother's military footsteps before he experienced his political awakening. And, as we shall see, consistency in word or deed isn't exactly Oswald's trademark. Posner also notes that Oswald's unquestionable commitment to Marxism from the age of 15 or so is a real problem for the conspiracy theorists. Quoting Harold Weisberg, who weirdly tries to square this circle, Oswald's commitment to communism only makes sense when the possibility of his being someone's agent is considered. What the fuck? Regardless, Oswald's military service included stints in Japanese bases where highly sensitive U-2 spy planes were being tested, which, of course, would lead to no end of conspiracy speculation later on. But there's no indication that Oswald's security clearance, which never went above the lowest confidential level, would have given him any information on these or other sensitive topics. He also took a stab at learning Russian during his service, though he didn't do any better in this endeavor than he did with his previous academic pursuits. Claiming his mom needed him at home, he got a hardship discharge from the Marines in 1959. Then, completely ignoring her, he traveled as soon as he could to Finland, where he was issued a tourist visa to... Surprise, surprise. The Soviet Union. He immediately petitioned to become a Soviet citizen, going so far as to appear at the U.S. Embassy and ostentatiously renouncing his U.S. citizenship, raving to the U.S. ambassador that he would shortly be blabbing everything he knew about U.S. military secrets. That is... As noted, nothing. To whatever commie officials might want to hear about it. Apparently, he believed this hissy fit might prove his sincerity to the powers that be in Mother Russia. Later, when he learned that his application had been denied, he tried to kill himself in his Moscow hotel room. Worried that a dead U.S. Marine and attempted defector might screw up international relations, the Soviet authorities allowed Oswald to stay on in the country as a stateless person. But in spite of his expectations of fame, glory, and a prominent place in the forefront of the revolution, his mild renown in the USSR rapidly faded, his wish to attend Moscow University was denied, and he ended up working in a factory job in Minsk. He pledged his troth to a co-worker who turned him down in 1961, which likely prompted the impetuous Oswald to marry a 19-year-old student named Marina that same year, after a six-week courtship. Not a big planner, Arlie. In spite of his fully furnished government-provided apartment, a better-than-Soviet-average job, and a new wife and shortly a child, Oswald continued his lifelong habit of becoming discontented by society's stubborn refusal to treat him like a world-changing intellectual hero. By March of 1962, he had applied for and received permission from the U.S. to return with his new Russian bride and daughter. 
The Oswalds settled in the Dallas, Texas area, where Lee held a couple of different jobs, collecting unemployment in the interim. Unsurprisingly, the FBI started dropping in periodically on the family, as Lee's behavior over the past few years had made him a decidedly interesting topic for a country deep in the middle of a Cold War. He and Marina met with a group of Russian expats in the Dallas area. They all loved Marina. Lee, not so much. Oswald maintained his pattern of drifting from menial job to menial job. During this period, he also continued to be just a titanic asshole to everyone in his life. With the possible exception of his daughter. You will also be shocked to learn, I'm sure, that he was a wife-beater. Anyway, he got it into his head to channel his political discontents, as well as his apparent need to inflict violence on somebody, damn it, into a scheme to kill General Edwin Walker. Walker was an arch-right-winger headquartered in the Dallas area who had been relieved of his command by JFK for distributing John Birch Society literature and trying to influence the votes of men under his command. Oswald used mail order and a false name to purchase his infamous Manlicker Carcano rifle for this job, and on April 10th, having cased the joint over the preceding days, took a shot at the general while the latter was seated at his desk doing taxes. He missed by inches because his bullet was deflected by the wooden frame that ran horizontally through the middle of the window pane. Oswald wanted to try again, but eventually Marina talked him out of it. Posner notes that conspiracists, including the notorious New Orleans D.A. Garrison, do not generally mention the Walker shooting because it makes it awfully hard to see Oswald as an innocent patsy in the later JFK assassination. In another interesting tidbit, Marina claims she also stopped Lee from leaving the house with a revolver when he heard Nixon was in town. Later that same month, Lee moved back to his hometown of New Orleans, and in spite of their ongoing marital struggles, the pregnant Marina and their daughter soon joined him. While there, he desperately tried to beef up his radical activist bona fides, creating his own unofficial branch of the Communist Sympathizing Fair Play for Cuba Committee, handing out flyers against the instructions of the national organization, getting into fights with anti-Castro Cubans in the streets, and even participating in a televised interview and debate on the topic on local NBC affiliate WDSU, which, because we live in an age of technological miracles, we can actually excerpt right here, right now. This is the first of a series of Latin listening post interviews with persons more or less directly concerned with the conflict between the United States and Cuba. Tonight we have with us a representative of probably the most controversial organization connected with Cuba in this country. The organization, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The person, Lee Oswald, secretary of the New Orleans chapter to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Mr. Oswald, uh, if I may, uh, how long has the Fair Play for Cuba Committee uh, I had an organization in New Orleans. We have had members in this area for several months now. Up until about two months ago, however, we have not organized our members into any sort of an active group. Uh, until, as you say, this week, we have decided to feel out the public uh, what they think of our organization, our aims. And for that purpose, we have been, as you say, distributing literature on the street. Uh, for the purpose of trying to attract uh, new members. I believe it was mentioned that you at one time asked to renounce your American citizenship and become a, a citizen of the Soviet Union. Is that correct? Well, I don't think that has a particular uh, uh, import to this discussion. We are discussing uh, Cuban-American relations. Well, no, it, I think it has a bearing to this uh, extent, Mr. Oswald. You say, apparently, that Cuba is not dominated by Russia. And yet, uh, you apparently, by your own past actions, have shown that you have an affinity for Russia and perhaps communism, although I don't know that you admit that you either are a communist or have been. Uh, could you straighten out that point? Are you or have you been a communist? Well, I had answered that uh, uh, 
prior to this program on another radio program. Are you a Marxist? Uh, yes, I am a Marxist. Then, in September, Marina and daughter returned to Texas with their family friend Ruth Payne, while Oswald traveled to Mexico. Why Mexico? Because he saw it as his best option for getting to Cuba, which had now become the temporary socialist paradise of his dreams. He was stymied in this pursuit, not that Marina believed he would have been any happier had he managed to actually travel to Cuba. She was convinced that he would have hated it, that he would have hated any place he ended up. Where could Lee have been happy? Only on the moon. Perhaps, she thought. Incidentally, the Mexico angle wasn't his first idea for joining Comrade Castro. According to his wife, he dreamed of taking over a plane mid-flight and using it as part of his defection plan, Posner elaborates. He trained on his own for days, running about the apartment clad only in his underwear, practicing leaps and trying to strengthen his legs and arms, things he considered necessary attributes to hijacking a plane. Junie, Marina whispered to her daughter, our papa is out of his mind. You will be shocked to learn that conspiracists, again, generally fail to mention this when painting Oswald as an innocent patsy. So, returning from Mexico, Lee was the beneficiary of some employment advice from that aforementioned family friend, Ruth Payne, who had tried to help the Oswalds over the preceding couple of years. She got Lee a hot tip on a job at a book depository. Honest, blue-collar work, paying $1.25 per day. Now, conspiracists will baselessly argue that Oswald's getting this job was integral to a conspiracy plot, whether because he was to be one of the shooters or because he was being elaborately set up as a patsy. But he had applied for numerous other positions in the area the same week that he got the depository job. Any one of these could have hired him, which seems weird if the plot hinged on his getting the book depository gig and no other. Also, he got the position before Kennedy's route from the airport to his speech was determined, which again seems like a lot of dice to roll for an intricate conspiracy. And here's where the stage of history just happens to coincide with the life of this sad, violent, self-aggrandizing man. As Posner rather succinctly puts it, Failed in his attempts to find happiness in Russia and the U.S., unable to make a living in America, frustrated in his marriage, and hounded in his view by the FBI, he was desperate to break out of his downward spiral. He had endured long enough the humiliations of his fellow Marines, the Russian and Cuban bureaucrats, the employers that fired him. Lee Oswald always thought that he was smarter and better than other people, and was angered that others failed to recognize the stature that he thought he deserved. Now, by chance, he had an opportunity that he knew would only happen once in his lifetime. Lee was living in a boarding house, visiting Marina and the two kids. She gave birth to their second daughter in late October. On the weekends. But on November the 21st, a Thursday, he unexpectedly dropped in on Ruth Payne's house, where Marina, his children, and his men liquor Carcano were currently residing. Hitching a ride back to town with a co-worker the next morning, he left almost all of his money in his wedding ring for Marina to find, and carrying a blanket-wrapped bundle he claimed contained curtain rods, clocked in and worked through the morning. At around noon, he used his lunch break to rearrange boxes, setting up a sniper's nest in the corner of the sixth floor of the book depository, waited for the president's motorcade to slow as it turned the corner onto Elm Street, directly in front of the building, and then... From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. 
Peter Knight notes that while the event is etched in the minds of those who lived through it, it's not the assassination itself that many people think of as their primary touchstone. When people talk about their indelible memories of the shooting of JFK, often what they're really talking about is their memory of certain television images. The event they remember is not so much the Kennedy assassination per se, as the four-day telethon of which they were the exhausted but compulsive viewers. Similar to the way my generation incorporated the world-redefining 9-11 events into our consciences largely as a series of CNN chirons, I suppose. Anyway, in the chaos that followed, Oswald slipped out of the depository building, in his haste leaving the rifle and shell casings on the sixth floor, and hopped on a crosstown bus. Dismayed by the traffic, he soon left the bus and took a taxi the rest of the way to his rooming house. He was only there for a few minutes, changing his pants, putting on a jacket, and, as it turns out, pocketing his revolver before walking out the door. About ten minutes later, he encountered Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett, who pulled up in his patrol car, apparently because Oswald matched an eyewitness description of the man seen through the window of the book depository holding a rifle. As soon as Tippett exited the car, Oswald killed him with four shots from the revolver. Oswald skittered rapidly away from the scene of his latest crime, attracting the attention of a shoe store manager named Johnny Brewer, who pursued the criminal from his store to the Texas theater, where he encouraged a ticket taker to phone the police. They arrived, swarmed the screening room, and after punching a cop, Oswald was taken into custody. Over the next two days, he was interrogated by various law enforcement officers. Many conspiracy theorists will make hay out of the fact that the interrogation of Oswald in police custody wasn't audiotaped. But, as usual, there's a good reason why that's the case. First of all, recording interrogation wasn't standard Dallas Police Department policy at the time. But Posner quotes then-assistant DA Bill Alexander offering another solid reason. In Texas... Uh, Dana. Sorry to interrupt, but could you give me a little more... Dallas twang in that read? In Texas... Damn it. In Texas, at that time, an old statement under duress was no good... We had to inform him that he did not have to make any statement, and any that he did make had to be voluntary, witness, reduced to writing, and could be used against him. So our questions for him were strictly to get information. If he'd said, yeah, I killed that no-good SOB president, it would have been inadmissible in any court. Yeehaw, Dana. Yeehaw. At midnight, the police, overwhelmed by reporters camped out around their headquarters, acquiesced to the journalist's demands for access to the prisoner and made him available for a very weird press conference. No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. The uh, first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall... Uh, in the meantime, unbeknownst to anyone except his few friends and some of the dancers who worked in his skeevy strip clubs, a man born with the name Jacob Rubenstein was building up a real head of steam regarding Oswald, his murder of the president, and the inevitable fact that Jackie would have to return to the scene of the crime to testify in the eventual trial. Now, surely many folks in Dallas, and across the nation and the world for that matter, entertained vicious Oswald revenge fantasies over that weekend. But Jack Ruby took it just a scooch farther than his imagination. When the Dallas police brought Oswald out through the garage to transfer him from the city to the county jail on Sunday morning, the 24th, Ruby, who was friendly with all of the local cops and knew how to sneak his way into the facility, coincidentally walked straight up the main entrance ramp at the key moment, saw the handcuffed Oswald passing by, and took his shot. Being let out by uh, Captain Fritz. There is Leon. Oh, 
been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. Absolute panic. Absolute panic. Here From there, what rapidly developed was probably the most widely believed conspiracy theory in the United States. Stated briefly, it boils down to this. Oswald was at most some small part of a large conspiracy to kill Kennedy, and was at worst a patsy for the secretive forces that actually perpetrated the deed. Ruby was the hitman sent to silence him before word of the conspiracy emerged from the suspect. Ruby conveniently dies of cancer a few years later before he can spill his guts. And since then, anyone who knew anything about the real story has kept his or her mouth shut. Yes, that pretty much seems like the long and short of it. But you're saying the story you told is a real one, and the conspiracy theories are off-base. What makes you so sure? I'm so happy you asked. Let's start with the Warren Commission. Got a date with the Umbrella Man Castro and the Mexicans KGB and LBJ In early 1964, President Johnson, knowing that the public would demand a major investigation into Kennedy's death, essentially strong-armed one of the most trusted men in America, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court Earl Warren, into heading up a blue-ribbon government panel to investigate the assassination. This group worked for almost a year, assembling not only a large report that was the hottest-selling book of the mid-60s, but also a 26-volume set of evidence and notes. And all of this work pointed to the singular conclusion that Oswald killed Kennedy alone, and Jack Ruby killed Oswald, again, without help. The Warren Commission and its lengthy report have developed their own separate aura. The sheer size and persnickety detail that went into its creation caused the legendary American author Don DeLillo to refer to it as the megaton novel James Joyce would have written if he'd moved to Iowa City and lived to be a hundred. But also, it's really long. Absurdly so, if you like to read all of the accompanying volumes. Like, really, really long. And almost nobody reads it anymore. Seriously. Hardly anybody. And there are so many huge books about the controversy, and they, along with the conspiracist books, quote from the Warren Report so extensively that, well, you know... He can't quite bring himself to admit to you that he never read it. Uh, well, no. No, I didn't. But in my defense, I did read several thousand pages in preparation for this show, in addition to watching and listening to a huge amount of other... You know what? I'm not apologizing. I'm owning my choices. My name is Fearful Jesuit. I'm an anti-conspiracy podcaster. And I haven't read the Warren Report. But based on the summaries and explorations of the Warren Commission's evidence as reflected in Bulioses and Posner's books, as well as the way it is selectively and often dishonestly quoted by the conspiracists, I think I've got the gist. Anyway, the modern view of the Warren Commission by the American public is, as noted by Posner, almost universally derided, mostly by people who have never read it. <clears throat> but I'm not deriding. Please continue. The debate is no longer whether JFK was killed by Lee Oswald acting alone or as part of a conspiracy. It is instead which conspiracy is correct. While Posner and Buliosi's books are largely defenses of the report's conclusions, Peter Knight spends a great deal more time evaluating its strengths and weaknesses as a historical document and even as a work of literature. He points out that because the commissioners limited themselves to taking testimony from witnesses, relying mostly on the FBI and CIA for the evidence and details from the case, they opened themselves up to accusations that they were simply lapdogs for the powers that be. He suggests this attitude is unfair. 
It had not unquestioningly accepted the reports of the government agencies. Not only were the premises and conclusions of those reports critically reassessed, but all assertions or rumors relating to a possible conspiracy or the complicity of others in Oswald, which have come to the attention of the committee, were investigated. On the other hand, he does note that the commission gives short shrift to alternative theories through a selective filtering of the evidence to suit its case. This is not, of course, to say that that case, or the selective evidence, is wrong. But the commission doesn't seem to see its task as weighing and comparing these theories. Rather, it's to prove beyond reasonable doubt the single conclusion that it was Oswald is written with the fixated, browbeating relentlessness of a prosecutor's case in which everything is marshaled towards the incontrovertible proof at hand. This approach, of course, is effective in trying to lay out the evidence of what happened, as we narrated earlier, but it does nothing to help explain why it happened. For that, we need to try to figure out what the fuck animated Lee Harvey Oswald, a task that has stymied writers both great and small for years. Again, Night notes, the commissioners are nearly powerless to address the inherent almost novelistic ambiguity in Oswald's life and character. The report has to admit that Oswald's actions, for example his half-hearted and haphazard attempts to flee after the assassination, can equally be viewed as random or as part of a conscious plan that has yet to be discovered. As we'll discuss further a little later, the objections, in the form of books, journals, magazine articles, letters to the editor, and well-attended speeches, started early and only grew in volume over the ensuing decade. In the wake of the Watergate scandal, with faith in government institutions at a new low, Congress convened the House Special Committee on Assassinations in 1976 with a mandate of reinvestigating not only the JFK, but also the MLK assassination. We touched on their conclusions about MLK in the last episode. Briefly, James Earl Ray killed King, but there may have been a conspiracy involving his brothers, or some loose, nonspecific assumption by Ray that he would be able to eventually collect cash from one of the assholes who had placed a bounty on King's head. As for JFK, as Knight notes, the HSCA's findings... I agreed with the basic conclusion that Oswald shot and killed Kennedy from the Texas School Book Depository, and that the Warren Commission's analysis of Oswald's background and motives were fundamentally sound. But its most important, headline-grabbing conclusion was... On one hand, its shocking conclusion of a second gunman in the Kennedy assassination chimes with the climate of suspicion in the mid-1970s that was all too ready to charge a willful or negligent cover-up on the part of the Warren Commission. On the other hand, it reaffirms the basic Oswald did it position. Much of the HSCA report is taken up with refuting the outpouring of conspiracy theories, yet it was itself a major contribution to the Warren Commission revisionism. You hear that bit? The HSCA determined that there was a second gunman in the JFK assassination. That's a pretty big claim, especially since the rest of its conclusions are entirely in line with the Warren Commission's. Oswald, book depository, three shots. Jack Ruby, parking garage, one shot, no involvement by the CIA, FBI, Secret Service, Mafia, Cubans, Soviets, or any of the other usual suspects. And yet they found there was a second gunman, and thus at least some sort of conspiracy, albeit one they failed to define. You might be wondering, given all of this, how they came to that conclusion. Turns out it all hinged on a police recording from Dallas on the day of the assassination, which was analyzed by two acoustic experts. They determined that this recording revealed a fourth shot. Now, upon listening to said recording, you might have some questions about how they came to that conclusion. Yeah, not hearing any gunshots. 
Well, even at the time, the professors were a bit technical and evasive, talking about how this microphone, which was supposedly mounted on a motorcycle in Dealey Plaza, picked up impulse sounds and echo pattern predictions, which allowed them to have a 95% or better determination that there was a fourth shot and therefore a conspiracy. But I'm assuming they were wrong? Super duper, double secret wrong. First of all, the policeman, whose testimony that his mic was open led the committee to conclude he was the source of the recording, finally got to hear said audio only after the report was finalized. He noted it couldn't possibly be his bike, because immediately after the shooting, he turned on his siren and sped off to accompany the president's limo to Parkland Hospital. Yet there is no siren on the recording, only a gently tolling bell. The next nail in this argument's coffin came, as all brilliant forensic deductions must, from the mind of a rock drummer. The most important came from Steve Barber, a rock drummer living in a small town in Ohio. July of 1979, Gallery Magazine put out this special issue on the assassination of President Kennedy. And in it included a paper record of the recorded gunshot evidence. Well, anyway, I just played this thing to death, just trying to hear, you know, the gunshots and hear for myself what they really said was 95% evidence of a conspiracy. Steve Barber alone heard something all the experts missed, the barely audible sound of Sheriff Decker at headquarters telling policemen on the scene, hold everything secure. The stuck open microphone, which was on Channel 1, had somehow picked up Sheriff Decker's words from Channel 2, a phenomenon known as crosstalk. And back at police headquarters, the dictabout recorded what the microphone had picked up. I found that when Sheriff Decker is speaking, his voice is coming through the open microphone during the sound impulses that the acoustic experts said were gunshots but he didn't make his statement until a minute and a half after the assassination had already occurred, so those cannot be gunshots simply because of that. Getting out-scienced by Keith Moon Jr.'s gotta hurt, right, professors? Then, Buliosi relates, a panel of physicists and other scientists from MIT, Bell Labs, Berkeley, and Harvard determined that while the impulse sounds were indeed present, they took place one minute after the assassination. The net result, though, of all of this correcting of the HSCA's single, if significant, misstep in accepting the acoustic analysis as critical evidence was, as Knight notes, The HSCA report painstakingly explains the arcane statistical analysis and minutiae of the experiments performed by the two teams of experts, and yet it manages to almost totally ignore the elephant in the room, namely that the tape cannot be of the assassination because there are no sirens and instead there is a bell tolling pleasantly. The fiasco of the acoustic evidence also has the unfortunate effect of casting doubt on the other scientific evidence of the HSCA, a series of new and seemingly more rigorous tests that promised to clarify many false rumors on the case. So in terms of official investigations, that's where things stand to this day. Of course, in terms of unofficial investigations, there's a new one published every week. That may sound like an exaggeration. But if you take a quick glance at the sheer number of Kennedy and assassination-related books available to the budding conspiracist, I'm not sure it actually is. And let's acknowledge that while accepting the mainstream, if highly controversial, expert consensus about what happened around the assassination. All those things are still really fucking weird, hinging as they do on the bizarre personalities of Oswald and Ruby, two men whose half-acidly planned and seemingly impulsive actions respectively had such a huge, disproportionate impact. 
Oswald's biography, as we've outlined it, obviously is far from conventional. What scruffy, working-class high school dropout ends up defecting and then undefecting from his native country's mortal enemy nation, and then not only tries to murder a right-wing blowhard, but successfully assassinates a popular center-left president. But except for the geographical perambulations that his dissatisfied spirit sent him on, his psychological and behavioral history, as narrated by Buliosian Posner, reads very much like the -the after-the-fact reconstruction of the lives of any number of disturbed individuals who made history in a sudden and negative way. For example, many of the antisocial, megalomaniacal, pseudo-intellectual tendencies Oswald exhibited are right in line with Eric Harris, the dominant partner of the Columbine duo. It's just that whenever you read these details, assassination authors feel obliged to accompany them with extensive reinforcements and footnotes addressing the conspiracists who have, over the decades, ignored, distorted, or baselessly disputed these facts. It's like reading a biography that's also an exasperated debate with ghosts. Before we continue, we need to acknowledge that many responsible writers have pointed out that in spite of his book's grandiose title and his claims to have put paid to all disputes about the assassination, Gerald Posner cut some corners and his generally excellent case closed. Lambert points to Posner's use of the testimony of a psychologist who examined the young Oswald to reinforce his potential for violence. In reality, the Warren Commission interviewer demonstrated way back in 64 that this testimony was self-serving, after-the-fact analysis engineered to make the testifier seem more prescient. Posner should have recognized this and avoided using it. Buliosi calls him out for failure to give witnesses with contradicting testimony a fair shake, as we'll discuss a bit later. Keeping these facts in mind, we still think there's a great deal of excellent original reporting in the book, though wherever possible, we have double-checked his conclusion with other authors. As for Ruby, he was clearly an unhappy and unstable personality with a long history of fighting, including some pretty admirable street brawling with pro-fascist gangs. To reiterate our official paranoid strain stance, fuck Nazis. But in short, he was a bruiser, the kind of guy who liked to play bouncer with anyone who caused a ruckus in one of his clubs, roughing up the ne'er-do-well before throwing him out in the street. Kennedy's death hit him hard. He had viewed the young president as a good friend to the Jews, and over the two days between the assassination and his killing of the perpetrator, he had exacerbated his already parlous mental state with lack of sleep, obsessive thoughts, conversations with friends and acquaintances that increased his agitation, and God knows what else. But when I mentioned previously that Ruby's action was impulsive, consider this. First, as far as anyone outside of the police station could have known, Oswald was to have been moved by 10 that morning, an hour before Ruby's serendipitous arrival. Oswald's transfer was held up by logistical problems with armored cars. Armored car conspiracy! Well, but hold on. If you think that this pause was to ensure Ruby was able to get into place, then it seems pretty weird that the assassin assassin's first stop upon parking his car was to go to the Western Union where he wired $25 as a loan to one of his employees. The timestamp on that transaction was 1117. Is it even conceivable that an intricate conspiracy involving a cast of thousands would let their key button man dawdle at a nearby business, giving him only four minutes to get into position? Well, I mean, probably not. Right, but finding these little points where the story reveals itself to be a weird confluence of coincidences instead of a carefully plotted conspiracy is difficult, nuanced, and certainly hasn't been helped by the secrecy insisted upon by various government agencies that did the primary investigation. The public immediately suspected a conspiracy, but then the publication of the Warren Commission smoothed the waters. Briefly. 
Within months, though, even mainstream publications were expressing skepticism, at least partially because of the widespread and accurate assertion that the Warren Commission hadn't sufficiently explained its reasons for dismissing conspiracy as an explanation. Things snowballed rapidly. Immediately after the shooting, Knight notes that Kennedy supporters presumed the killer was a right-winger, leading to confusion when Oswald was proved to be a leftist. This led many pro-conspiracist authors to suggest that Oswald's commie bona fides were a smokescreen, if you will, a false flag. Covering up. A deliberate attempt by reactionary forces to thwart the potential for wide-ranging progressive change in areas such as economic policy, civil rights, and the Cold War. Influential figures like Malcolm X opined as well. Famously, he referred to the event as chickens coming home to roost. I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And, yes, and what did you say, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost, and, which means the same thing. Uh, uh, climate of hate means that this is, this is the result of something. And when I said chickens coming home to roof, I mean, uh, chickens coming home to roof, I said the same thing. But did you, did, you did not say that you were glad the president was killed. No, that's what the press said. Uh-huh. What would I look like saying that I'm glad the president was killed? In other words, an outgrowth of the climate of violence that white America had built up to terrorize and keep African Americans in their place. The controversy over this statement provided Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad with a convenient excuse to expel X from the Nation of Islam fueling bad blood that would lead to the latter's 1965 assassination. By the mid-60s, only about a third of Americans believed Oswald acted alone. Ruby's silencing of the assassin was apparently the key evidence cementing the majority's pro-conspiracy attitude, though those blamed ranged from the Russians and Cubans abroad and the far-right and African-Americans domestically. Knight also notes that some highly trusted sources issued flawed defenses of the Oswald-only view, including Life magazine's December 1963 article, End to Nagging Rumors, The Six Critical Seconds. In it, the magazine opted for a completely wrong assertion that the president had turned so far in his seat that the bullet from behind had hit him in the throat. Of course, the Sapruder film, which Life owned the exclusive copyright to, conclusively proves this is horseshit. With friends like this, the Warren Commission hardly needed enemies. But anyway, doubt was rife from the jump. Bobby Kennedy allegedly asked the CIA director, did you kill my brother on the day of the assassination? By 68, one author was citing 92 published sources on the case that had already preceded him. To be honest, at that time, we might have been part of the group of doubters. We would have been in good company. British pacifist and super-genius mathematician Bertrand Russell was so sure there was a conspiracy that he formed a European Who Killed Kennedy committee, reminiscent of the 9-11 truther theories later, similarly across the pond origins. And they were all wrong. But let's list all of the reasons why a reasonable person might have doubted, aside from the Ruby assassin assassination. As noted earlier, Oswald had these weird connections to Russia. And then when he defected, we let him back in. Which, incidentally, the U.S. did for a number of other defectors with second thoughts around the same time. Oswald claimed he was a patsy in talking to the press after his arrest. Kennedy was hated by, among others, the Mafia, the Cubans, both pro- and anti-Castro, Herbert Hoover, the head of the FBI, 
his own vice president, Lyndon Johnson, who of course became president upon his demise. All of these groups and individuals had clearer motives for wishing Kennedy dead than did Oswald. There was conflicting testimony from some witnesses in Dealey Plaza. There were confident assertions that the magic bullet theory, the idea that the second bullet fired caused seven wounds in Kennedy and Connolly, was a fiction. We all know the horrific shit the CIA and FBI were involved in at the time. And the goddamn president's brain disappeared around 1965. Yeah. Seriously. And finally, Oswald was from New Orleans, which is a very weird conspiracy and corruption-friendly town. And that happenstance of birth would eventually lead to one of the most bizarre and egregious trials in American history, as well as one phenomenally well-made, extremely popular, almost totally inaccurate film. Before we get to all of that, though, we have a personal experience to share. During the now-legendary, in his mind, Paranoid Strain Road Trip of 2017, we were overjoyed to be able to visit the excellent museum that now occupies the 6th and 7th floors of the infamous Book Depository Building in Dallas. We were able to enjoy its meticulous reconstruction of evidence and theories about the case. And best of all, we were able to interview the friendly and knowledgeable Stephen Fagan. He provided invaluable insights about the assassination, its effect on the city, and the various controversies that have surrounded it ever since. My name is Stephen Fagan. I'm the curator at the Sixth Form Museum at Dealey Plaza. Well, almost immediately after the assassination, there was this community need to uh, mark the site as, as, a, as a point of commemoration. Uh, it was a very painful reminder for the city of Dallas, but it was lost on no one that this became the most visited site in the city within 24 hours of the assassination. Sure. And, and that interest continued to grow year after year until by the early 1970s, it was estimated that about a million people a year came to Dealey Plaza. Uh, Dallas County, fearing that the building was going to be torn down around 1977, decided to purchase it as part of a bond package. And uh, because it was going to be a useful part of the community, uh, as the seat of Dallas County government, the voters were okay with the county buying the old Texas School Book Depository. And so the county took ownership of the building in early 1978. But no county official wanted to office in the sniper's nest on the sixth floor. Uh, they also recognized this need to provide a place of uh, context and history up on the sixth floor where, where all of this happened. And so thus began about a 12-year, very controversial effort started by this grassroots network of community leaders to create an exhibition, uh, which ultimately became a museum, on the sixth floor of the depository. And so that, that effort began about 1979. And the the sixth floor opened in February of 1989. Dealey Plaza is the second most visited historic site in the state of Texas behind the Alamo. And uh, folks come to the museum uh, to learn about the assassination, but also to put sort of the, the assassination within the context of the history and culture of the 1960s. My first visit to the Sixth Floor Museum was in February of 1989. I came opening week uh, with my parents and grandparents. I sort of grew up immersed with a very personal connection I felt to the story. I started here in uh, 2000. And I'm the curator at the museum, uh, but it's been a big part of my life for the last 17 years. Sure. Dallas 
had been considered this hotbed of radical conservatism long before the Kennedy assassination. It was the southwestern headquarters of the John Birch Society. They operated a bookstore here. It was the home of Major General Edwin Walker, who was sort of a darling of the far right-wing community. Dallas had this growing reputation, and a series of incidents really starting in 1960 paved the way for what ultimately became this city of hate stigma that the city was burdened with. The first of these uh, happened four days before the 1960 presidential election. Lyndon Johnson, who of course was running uh, as vice president with John F. Kennedy, was the Senate majority leader at the time. He spoke over at the uh, Adolphus Hotel in Dallas and was heckled. He and his wife Lady Bird were heckled by over 100 demonstrators trying to cross Commerce Street. And we're talking just a short drive away from Dealey Plaza. And this gained a great deal of national attention because Lady Bird uh, was spit on, her gloves were thrown in the gutter. Uh, Johnson made a big deal about this, about how unfairly he was treated, about how terribly his wife was treated, and look at this uh, ultra-conservative rabble that is just ruining the uh, reputation of the city of Dallas. And there was a great deal of anti-Dallas sentiment after the 1960 election on both sides because Republicans thought that these extremists in Dallas had spoiled the election for Nixon. And then you had the Democrats saying, well, these guys, this is the, this is the nutty right-wing extremist element in the South that we are talking about. It's characterized right here. It's embodied in the city of Dallas. And then finally, just a month before the assassination, the United Nations Ambassador Adlai Stevenson was here to speak at Memorial Auditorium. When he left the auditorium, uh, he noticed this big crowd across the street just yelling things at him. And Stevenson was a, was a nice guy, and he decided to go over to try to talk to the crowd, engage with the crowd. Just as he got over there, uh, this woman hit him on the head with one of these signs. And this was captured on film, and a photograph was taken. A student next to the woman spit on him. And the picture was published in Time Magazine. Uh, the uh, CBS uh, Evening News ran a story on it. And so leading up to the Kennedy visit, this is, this is late October of 63. Uh, we have a dignitary uh, sort of abused and heckled visiting Dallas. Stevenson allegedly told Kennedy personally that Dallas was not a safe environment for him to go to. Uh, but, but Kennedy wasn't going to be deterred from this Texas trip, this unofficial kickoff to the 1964 re-election campaign. Campaign. When it was Dallas, it didn't really surprise very many people. Oh, Dallas, that's where things like this happen. This, the general consensus was it's one of General Walker's men. It's one of the far right-wing birchers. Within 90 minutes, Oswald arrested, and as you know, the evening progresses, and more and more is found out about Oswald's background. You know, this left-leaning self-described Marxist-Leninist. You have a very different portrait, a political ideology vastly different from what most people assumed was the general mentality of Dallasites. And it took arguably decades for Dallas to recover from this very painful stigma. And so when you think about that, and think about this building in the context of that. What do you do with this site? Because this building was a manifestation of evil for so many around the world. And for Dallasites, it was this painful daily reminder uh, of, of what happened. 
plans were announced around 83 uh, for what this museum would ultimately become. One of our Dallas City Council members uh, who voted in favor of demolition of this building actually said at a council meeting that this building could never be a memorial to John F. Kennedy because Kennedy never set foot here. He didn't even know the Texas School Book Depository existed and therefore it would only be a glorification of Lee Harvey Oswald. Fortunately, um, logic prevailed and, and they recognized, particularly one man, uh, the, the public works director for Dallas County who officed right across the street, seeing the tourist interest, he recognized that tearing this building down would be in many ways fulfilling the prophecy that so many had about Dallas, this idea that Dallas does have something to hide and tearing down the school book depository would be proof of that. The Texas School Book Depository Company uh, was, just as the name implies, it was a distribution hub for school textbooks. The first four floors of the building were uh, depository company offices, but also offices for regional offices for most of the textbook publishers like M McMillan, McGraw-Hill, Scott Forsman, and floors five, six, and seven were open storage for school textbooks. And so employees like Lee Harvey Oswald, who was an order filler, uh, would basically have his clipboard, get a, cer you know, a certain number of boxes of math and science and English books from the Scott Forsman section on the sixth floor and were needed to be you know, put on this dolly, taken down the freight elevator, packed up to go out to schools in North Texas. That was Oswald's job, and he had worked here for several weeks uh, prior to the assassination. One of the first things people ask me when I mention Oswald's employment here, they're, well, did he get the job after the presidential parade route was planned through Dallas? And as wonderfully simple as that would be, the answer is no. Oswald got the job here before any motorcade had been determined for President Kennedy. It was through Ruth Payne that he found out about the job opening here at the Texas School Book Depository because a neighbor uh, to the Paynes out in Irving, uh, Lenny Mae Randall, her brother Wesley Frazier, Buell Wesley Frazier, was an order filler here at the depository. Ruth learned about an opening and so she actually paved the way for Oswald to get the job here, which of course is implicated in so many theories, Ruth Payne as an accomplice or as some sort of a, a plant who, who manipulated Oswald to get him here into this building even though there's no real proof of that. He lied. He said that he had never had any run-ins with the police, even though he had just gotten arrested that summer in New Orleans for fighting with the anti-Castro Cubans. He came into this building uh, that day, this young man, uh, 24 years old, in the midst of a disintegrating marriage, a confused political ideology. He had left his wedding ring in a little teacup next to Marina's nightstand and uh, Oswald leaves the building. He's the only employee who's not accounted for when they do the roll call. Ultimately, he's arrested about 80 minutes later in the Texas theater after he does try to shoot a Dallas police officer in the face. A lot of people think about the assassination in terms of uh, Shakespearean proportions. It is this sort of Shakespearean tragedy, and if you want to believe in that, then Jack Ruby is Falstaff. He is by far the most colorful figure in the entire strange episodic story of the Kennedy assassination. Ruby did have documented low-level ties to organized crime in his youth growing up in Chicago, like a number of young people who did simple things like run errands for Al Capone and things like that. As far as documenting any real tangible link to organized crime as an adult, it gets a lot trickier. But Ruby had established himself here in Dallas, a wannabe figure who loved law enforcement, who would often visit the newspaper offices, would often visit the police station, always passing out these 
cards offering police officers and detectives free drinks at his club. Ruby was this master showman, and so he was always trying to promote his club and sort of be where the action was. There are Jack Rubies in every town. He enjoyed giving people the impression that there was more to him, perhaps, that he was involved in organized crime, whether that was true or not. Most people that I've spoken to who knew Ruby, who worked with Ruby, didn't feel like he had the mental capacity or the trustworthiness to be in the mob. But you can take from that what you will. Ruby enters the story on Sunday morning when he jumps out on live television and murders Lee Harvey Oswald. It's the first murder broadcast live on American television. And who is this guy? You know, he's immediately arrested. He's identified as Jacob Rubenstein. And so this whole background on Ruby comes out. And suddenly you have these ties to the Dallas Police Department. A lot of the cops knew him. How did he get into the basement? What was he doing there with reporters? Why did he have a gun? And it gets even more murkier because the gun that Ruby used to shoot Oswald was bought for him by a Dallas police officer. Joe Cody, who was a detective, uh, had bought that gun for Ruby because police officers could buy guns in Dallas without paying sales tax. So he bought the gun and sold it to Ruby at cost because he was a friend. And this happened years before, but there's a, there's a certain amount of irony there that the gun used to shoot Oswald was bought for Jack Ruby by a Dallas police officer. Ruby said he, he loved President Kennedy and, you know, he couldn't stand the smirk on Oswald's face. And the story is that he just wanted to spare Jacqueline Kennedy the pain of possibly having to come back to Dallas to testify in a trial against Oswald. But there's always going to be this sinister suspicion that he was acting on orders, that this was a mob hit and he was to silence Lee Harvey Oswald, even though there's no evidence of that whatsoever, nor is there any credible evidence that Ruby and Oswald knew each other, which was a major thing after the assassination. But what happened to Ruby after this was he was found guilty of, of murder with malice, uh, March 14, 1964, and the jury uh, gave him the death penalty. His attorney, uh, Melvin Belli, this very flamboyant attorney from San Francisco, had uh, come into town railing against Dallas, talking about how this was a hotbed of radical conservatism. He put forth this idea that Jack Ruby suffered from psychomotor epilepsy, this rare form of epilepsy in which Jack was in a fugue state and unaware of his actions when he shot Oswald. Belli railed against Dallas in the aftermath. He said this was the biggest kangaroo, kangaroo railroading court disgrace in the history of American law, something like that. And uh, they immediately appealed the verdict, and it was overturned remarkably. A lot of people don't know this, but Jack Ruby died an innocent man because the Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin overturned that guilty verdict. They concluded that Ruby did not receive a fair trial in Dallas. Mis various mistakes were made during the trial, and they had to move the trial outside of Dallas. So, so Ruby was going to have a new trial that was going to take place in Wichita Falls in 1967, Wichita Falls, Texas. It's remarkable that Jack Ruby spent the remaining years of his existence in a building adjacent to Dealey Plaza, but he was up on the sixth floor of the Dallas County Criminal Courts building. He had a cell up there. Deputy sheriffs uh, babysat him 24 hours a day to make sure he didn't hurt himself because he did apparently try to commit suicide a few times while in jail. Mentally, he deteriorated over the years. He started making these strange and bizarre allegations. When he would hear the trains going through Dealey Plaza, he would tell his jailers and his attorney that, that those were all filled with Jews going to the concentration camps. And he would talk about hearing noises in the building, and it was Jews being exterminated in the building. And, and he, he seemed to have this 
persecution complex that because of his act that Jews were being persecuted because Ruby was very proudly Jewish. He said after one of his court dates during the appeal process, the world will never know the true facts, my motivations. And then he suggested that these men of great power had so much to gain from the death of President Kennedy. Well, researchers, book authors, conspiracy theorists have seized upon all these Jack Ruby quotes. You see them replicated time and time again. They show up in the Oliver Stone movie, but they don't put into context Ruby's mental state at the time he was making these allegations. Do you think of Jack Ruby as this sort of uh, suave guy that you see in the aftermath of the Oswald shooting, sitting there for his initial trial in 1964, seeming very rational and reasonable a couple years later when he starts making these things? And, and Jack Ruby's a very different man, and you only have to look to his attorneys to, to hear them talk about how he was mentally incapacitated by this time. Ruby got very sick in uh, December of 66. He came down with pneumonia, taken to Parkland Hospital, where Kennedy and Oswald had both died, and he never left. He died January 3rd, 1967. The doctors discovered he had lung cancer, which was very advanced. Ultimately, Ruby died of a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot that started in his leg and traveled to his heart, uh, but it was brought on by his cancer. Ruby had made a comment to one of his jailers that he was being injected with cancer cells, and that's become a conspiracy theory that Ruby was killed because he knew too much, because he started making these comments in 65 and 66 that the world will never know and there's men that have so much to gain, and suddenly Ruby ups and dies of cancer. Well, Ruby himself said he was injected with cancer cells. Uh, this has gone on and on and on around in the various uh, you know books and documentaries, but there's no medical way to contract cancer via injection, but it's a great theory, and for Ruby to have said that uh, is, is assuming you believe sure. the deputy sheriff. There's no recording of Ruby saying this, but it just, that is Jack Ruby. He, he's at the center of this story, yet he's sort of removed from it because he very well could have just been this guy caught up in the emotion of the moment or looking to make a name for himself, thinking he would, you know, get off with a slap on the wrist and then have this notoriety that he could you know, pedal about for the rest of his life. Uh, or he could have been this sinister mafia figure who, who did this contracted hit against Oswald. So, you know, there's no evidence of that, but that's a, for so many people, that's a far more satisfying explanation as to who Jack Ruby was. So we have this oral history project where we talk to all sorts of individuals, and a big part of our oral history project are talking to the people who were very personally impacted by the assassination, including authors and researchers and documentarians. And I have found talking to many of these people that their interest in the assassination, what fuels them, is this personal sense of loss. Not necessarily the loss of President Kennedy, but the loss of something within themselves. That, that, that goes all the way back to William Manchester in Death of a President in 1967, the idea that the scales don't balance. You put John F. Kennedy on one end and Lee Harvey Oswald on another, they don't balance out. But Oswald may have affected this monumental change in the history of uh, 20th century American history, in world history. And when you look at a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald, that is unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. It is so much nicer to believe that he was killed by these dark forces at work within the government that he would that, that you know that, yeah. that, that he you know he was conspired against. It goes back to the Shakespearean uh, idea that that this his death has to mean something more than just a guy who really had this very confused political ideology and maybe was just upset because the night before the assassination he had asked his wife multiple 
multiple times to move back in with him, and she refused. And so the next morning, he goes to work angry, leaves his wedding ring behind, and takes a package wrapped in brown paper. For a lot of people, it's as simple as that, but within that simplicity is something deeply disturbing. And so that's that's where we are. The mafia and the CIA Back into the left Back into the left Well, it was all caught on film Frame 313 shows the shot to kill Thanks again to Mr. Fagan for his fascinating, fact-based observations. Now we dive into fantasy, what the conspiracists allege are the holes in the Warren Commission version of events. We've decided to center our refutation efforts around the movie JFK for a number of reasons. First, it's the piece of JFK conspiracy literature that has impacted the largest number of people, by far. Second, because Stone designed it this way, it's essentially a distillation of the first two and a half decades of conspiracy theorizing. Third. It means we get to argue with Kevin Costner. For the three of you who have gotten this far in the show and don't already know this, the movie JFK tells the story of New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who in 1969 brought the only prosecution ever associated with the Kennedy assassination, attempting to tie a local businessman named Clay Shaw to a conspiracy through extremely tenuous evidence. That synopsis is the nicest way we're ever planning to refer to Garrison or his witch hunt again. It's got a stellar supporting cast, excepting the woodenly wholesome Costner who plays Jim Garrison. And while we'll touch on other claims the movie discusses later in the show, there is one sequence that packs almost all of the film's conspiracy claims into one relatively tight monologue. The scene where Costner's Garrison, combining the historical trial transcript with an array of other sources, makes his closing argument to the jury. We're leaning particularly hard on the Buliosi book here because it's so unbelievably detailed, addressing and refuting not only everything in this speech, but hundreds of other conspiracist ideas. And because it proved so useful in our second 9-11 show, we're also bringing back the lightning round. This time, we're limiting ourselves to one minute to respond to each fallacious claim made by our fictionalized DA. That's difficult because, as we've discovered long ago, it's much easier to express a simple untruth than it is to prove that untruth is untrue. Get ready. A whole mess of bullshit is coming at you in three, two, one. The Warren Commission thought they had an open and shut case. Three bullets, one assassin. But two unpredictable things happened that day that made it virtually impossible. One... The 8mm home movie taken by Abraham Zapruder while standing near the grassy knoll. And two, the third wounded man, James Tay, who was nicked by a fragment while standing near the triple underpass. The time frame, 5.6 seconds, established by the Zapruder film, left no possibility of a full shot. Sounds like a pretty definitive time frame, right? But actually, he's only naming the lowest possible time in which Oswald might have fired based on the Zapruder film. In reality, because it's so grainy and lacks a soundtrack, and for a number of other reasons, the accepted time in which the bullets were fired is a range from 5.6 to 8.3 seconds. This is a pretty shitty thing to shade the truth on when you're leading off, right? And while we're on this topic, they love to insist that Oswald was not a good enough marksman to get off the shots, and furthermore that no one has been able to match his feat of marksmanship, except, well, 
Prosecutor Bugliosi. How would anyone who didn't have Volume 3 of the Warren Commission's 26 supporting volumes know that this is a false assertion? On page 446 of Volume 3, we learn that way back in 1964, one Specialist Miller of the United States Army, using Oswald's own Manlicker Carcano rifle, not only duplicated what Oswald did, but improved on Oswald's time. He was the first of many to match or exceed Oswald. Oh, and according to the Marine Corps records, in 1956, Oswald scored a 212 with his M1, making him officially a sharpshooter. Okay, back to the lightning. So the shot or fragment that left a superficial wound on Take's cheek had to come from one of the three bullets fired from the sixth floor of the depository. Yes, Mr. Tague's wound was probably caused by a bullet fired by Oswald, but it's very likely that it was a fragment of the first of the three bullets, which missed both Kennedy and the car. Many likely trajectories have the bullet ricocheting off of pavement or the dense wood of one of the oak trees outside the depository window and then hitting the curb, finally nicking Tague's cheek. Regardless, no fourth bullet. That leaves just two bullets. And we know one of them was the fatal headshot that killed Kennedy. So now a single bullet remains. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. Yep, and it does. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. We've come to know it as the magic bullet theory. We're going to give Stone and Garrison the benefit of the doubt here, but there's no question that Spectre's Jewish heritage has been a major component of the decades of conspiracist ire that has been aimed at his single bullet theory. We're not saying. We're just saying. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck. Wound number two where it waits 1.6 seconds, presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit, wound number three. The bullet then heads downward at an angle of 27 degrees, shattering Conley's fifth rib and exiting from the right side of his chest, wound number four. The bullet then turns right, and re-enters Conley's body at his right wrist. Wound number five. Shattering the radius bone, the bullet then exits Conley's wrist, wound number six, makes a dramatic U-turn, and buries itself into Conley's left thigh. Wound number seven. Nearly every word of the preceding is either a lie, a lie of omission, or vacuous. Let's break it down. As Bugliosi points out several times, given that there is not and never has been any evidence of a second shooter, much less a team, as Costner Garrison will shortly allege, the conspiracists have completely failed to meet their burden of proof in demonstrating that there were more than three shots fired. So even defending this is largely academic. But let's do it anyway. The main thing those who poo-poo the magic bullet explanation get wrong, whether inadvertently or deliberately, is the arrangement of President Kennedy and Governor Connolly in the car during the shooting. Yes, Connolly was sitting in front of the president, but not in the way that you would think of with a conventional car's front seat-rear seat arrangement. Instead, Connolly was seated in what's known as a jump seat, which, as Bugliosi notes, was situated a half foot inside and to the left of the right door, but also three inches lower than the back seat. This means the governor was seated below and to the left of the president. 
In addition, at the moment Kennedy is shot the first time by the second bullet fired by Oswald. Which is obvious in the Zapruta film because of the neuromuscular reflex reaction that sends the president's hands flying up to his throat and his elbows outward at 90 degree angles. Connolly is turned to the right. Well, guess what happens to the mysterious perambulations of the bullet when you take the position and body angle into account? A nearly straight line, totally consistent with the expected trajectory for a bullet fired from behind and above the victims. And that stuff about the zigzagging to hit the wrist? Nonsense. It's like Stone and Company have never heard of bullets ricocheting. And it's found in almost pristine condition on a stretch in a court or Parkland Hospital. As for this jawing about a pristine bullet and how it couldn't possibly have caused all that damage and yet remain in its final seemingly unmarred condition, a couple of points. The Army wound ballistics experts at Edward Arsenal fired some comparison bullets. Not one of them looked anything like this. Take a look at CE 856, an identical bullet fired through the wrist of a human cadaver. Just one of the bones smashed by the magic bullet. Seven wounds, gentlemen. Tough skin, dense bones. The problem here, as Buliosi points out, is that firing a bullet point-blank into a cadaver's wrist is almost completely different than having that same bullet strike a glancing blow on live bone tissue after it's lost more than half of its original velocity. In reality, this bullet would have been slowed from 2,000 feet per second, the same speed the cadaver wrist bullet was traveling when it impacted and deformed, to a range somewhere between 1,100 and 1,300 feet per second after passing through the bodies of both the president and the governor, still fast enough to break his wrist bone, ricochet off, and hit his thigh at around 700 feet per second. All of the above is quoted in Reclaiming History from the testimony of Larry Sturdivant, a ballistics expert to the HSCA. And we should mention that this supposedly pristine bullet only appears unblemished from photos on a horizontal angle that's usually used by conspiracists. Buliosi shows a view of the rear of the bullet where it's clearly deformed. Yet the government says it can prove it with some fancy physics in a nuclear laboratory. Of course they can. Theoretical physics can prove that an elephant can hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. (laughs) But use your eyes, your common sense. It's sadly unsurprising that the film should take this meat-headed, meaningless jab at science. But its purpose is to hand-wave away the unimpeachable fact that the bullets found in Kennedy and Connolly's bodies were proven by neuron activation analysis to have come from the particular brand of ammo that Oswald used. But even more interestingly, because that brand, Western cartridge ammo, had unique chemical characteristics, it was possible to prove that all of the fragments found in the car came from two and only two bullets. But you were saying, Mr. Garrison. This single bullet explanation is the foundation of the Warren Commission's claim of a lone assassin. And once you conclude the magic bullet could not create all seven of those wounds, you have to conclude that there was a fourth shot and a second rifleman. And if there was a second rifleman, then by definition, there had to be a conspiracy. So by your rationale, we've proved that since there were only three shots, we definitely don't have to conclude there was a conspiracy, right? 51 witnesses, gentlemen of the jury, thought they heard shots coming from the grassy knoll, which is to the right in front of the president. 
Yeah, let's talk about those witnesses. It's certainly true that a significant percentage of people present that day heard shots coming from somewhere other than the book depository. Though it's also true that around half of those crewed consistently identified the book depository as the source of the shots. However, while we want to take this testimony seriously, it's also true that in follow-up test firings at Dealey Plaza, it was hard for test subjects, who knew the shots would be coming, to identify where they had come from due to 20-plus structures that can produce echoes within the area. So people hearing shots from that direction is hardly conclusive. But it does call attention to the film's failure to mention that three-quarters or so of those witnesses heard exactly three shots, while fewer than 10% heard four or more. The number of shots being far easier for witnesses to identify accurately than the direction of the shooting. This fact, by the movie's own logic, indicates we can dismiss the idea of a conspiracy. Unfortunately, Costner doesn't suddenly have the scales fall from his eyes mid-monologue. On the other hand, we will definitely acknowledge the next Stone Garrison Costner point, which is some straight-up, mine Igor, Bride of Frankenstein shit. And when we finally get a court order to examine President Kennedy's brain in the National Archives, in the hopes of finding from which direction the bullet came from, we're told by the government, your government, that the President's brain has disappeared. This is, in fact, true. Sometime between 1965 and 1966, the president's brain was absconded with by persons who have never officially been identified, though we're pretty sure we know who did it and why. Most observers believe that RFK removed the brain and had it reinterred with the rest of his brother's body when it was moved to Arlington National Cemetery. As to his reasons, it's not because the brain held irrefutable proof of other shots from non-Oswald directions. There are enough autopsy photos and x-rays made before its disappearance, not to mention examinations by three pathologists, to ensure that the damage to the organ is what would have been expected from Oswald's third shot from the rear. Rather, it's because Bobby knew there was a likely and morbid possibility that the Smithsonian or other government institution might someday put the brain on public display, and he decided to spare his family that indignity. Right or wrong? It's definitely an understandable move from the late senator. And here's where it jumps from ignorant contrarianism straight into complete conjecture. So what really happened that day? Let's just for a moment speculate, shall we? Wait, that other shit wasn't speculation? Oh, it was, but it pales in comparison to what comes next. Buckle up. It's about to go into bullshit overdrive. We have the epileptic seizure around 12.15 p.m. distracting the police, making it easier for the shooters to move into their places. The epileptic later vanished, never checking into the hospital. The guy's name was Jerry Belknap. He was interviewed by the FBI, and because he felt better after an aspirin and water, didn't have himself checked into the hospital after his ambulance ride. Red herring. Next. The A-team gets on the sixth floor of the depository. Now, they were refurbishing the floors in the depository that week, which allowed unknown workmen in and out of the building. They moved quickly into position, just minutes before the shooting. B-team, one rifleman and one spotter with the headset and access to the building, moves into the low floor of the Daltex building. The third team, the C-team, moves in behind the picket fence above the grassy knoll, where the shooter and the spotter are first seen by the late Lee Bowers in the watchtower of the rail yard. So, of course, all of this ABC team stuff is total evidence-free nonsense, and neither the aforementioned Lee Bowers nor anyone else could find so much as a footprint indicating anyone had been in the area in question after the shooting. The first shot rings out. 
sounding like a backfire, misses the call completely. Frame 161, Kennedy stops waving as he hears something. Conley's head turns slightly to the right. Frame 193, the second shot hits Kennedy in the throat from the front. Frame 225, the president emerging from behind the road sign. You can see that he's obviously been hit, raising his arms to his throat. The third shot, frame 232, hits Kennedy in the back, pulling him downward and forward. Conley, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. Conley is turning here now, frame 238, the fourth shot. It misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely strikes James Craig down by the underpass. Not going deep here, but suffice it to say he's conjuring up bullets based on the fact that Kennedy's involuntary and Connolly's voluntary reactions to being hit by the same shot don't occur at the same time, which any neurologist will tell you is very likely to happen since the president's wound was near the spine and the governor's was not. And the tag thing, as noted before, is nonsense. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. Oh my god, he's gonna say it! Calm down, you weirdo. President going back and to his left. Shot from the front and right. Totally inconsistent with the shot from the depository. Again, back Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Okay, still on a timer. First, Buliosi's detailed analysis proves there is a slight forward motion to the president's head on impact, but then a combination of another neuromuscular response that would tend to jerk his head back, as well as the fact that a bullet weighing a third of an ounce, pushing the head forward, would be more than counteracted by the spray of blood, brains, and skull jetting forward into the right, which would push the head... which direction? Back and to the left. Oh, that's right. Also, as Biliosi points out, if the shot came from the front, why would the grotesque spray of material explode back in that same direction? In other words, if they say the shot came from the front, shouldn't the brain have exploded out the back of his head? You know, now that you mention it, that does seem obvious. And really, really gross. At least 12 other individuals were taken into custody by Dallas police. No record of their arrest. Men acting like hobos were being pulled off trains, marched through Dealey Plaza, photographed, and yet there's no records of their arrest. In a bit of serendipity that probably would have left Stone chastened if he had any shame, in 1992, one short year after this film came out, a journalist discovered the arrest records of these three supposed conspiracy figures masquerading as tramps from the day of the shooting. The authorities and press tracked down and interviewed the two who were still living, and the sister of the deceased third. Turns out they were just hobos. We could tell you their names here, but, well, what good would that do? They were transient dudes with nothing to do with the assassination. And where was Lee Harvey Oswald? Around 12.15, on her way out of the building to see the motorcade, Secretary Carolyn Arnold sees Oswald in the second floor snack room, where he said he went for a coke. He was in a booth on the right side of the room. Um, 
He's by himself, as usual, and appeared to be having his lunch. Uh, I didn't speak to him, but I recognized him clearly. Garrison couldn't have heard this story during the trial depicted in the film, since it took place in 69, and Arnold didn't make this statement about seeing Oswald sitting at 1215 on the second floor till 78. Not only does this later testimony contradict her statements to the FBI in 63, when she placed Oswald on the first floor, but it also conflicts with Oswald himself, who told the police he ate lunch on the first. Numerous other employees ate lunch around that time on the first or second floor. None saw Oswald. At the same time, Bonnie Ray Williams is supposedly eating his chicken lunch in the sixth floor. He's there until 12.15, maybe 12.20. He sees nobody. Actually, Williams testified he was headed down in an elevator from the sixth floor with other workers for lunch when they passed Oswald on the fifth, heading up. Lee asked them to send the elevator back up. You guys silly? I'm still going to send it. Possibly thinking about his eventual getaway, but they didn't. Honor Rollins down the street, he's looking up, he sees two men in the sixth floor window. Presumably after Bonnie Ray Williams had finished his lunch and left. Well, in one of his versions, he saw two people. In others, he saw one. He kept changing his statement, and he was known to be a serial exaggerator. And his wife didn't believe him. John Powell, the prisoner on the sixth floor of the Dallas County Jail sees them. Quite a few of us guys saw them. Everybody was hollering and yelling and all that. We thought there were security guys. Another 1978 HSCA era testimony jammed into this supposedly 1969 trial, Powell apparently chose not to mention what he saw when the sheriff's office asked for witnesses from the jail who saw the shooting at the time of the assassination. His claims 15 years after the fact aren't supported by any other eyewitness testimony. If Oswald was the assassin, he was certainly pretty nonchalant about moving himself into position. Later, he told Dallas police he was in the second floor snack room, probably told to wait there by his handler for a phone call. What's this handler bullshit? Okay, I've seen enough courtroom dramas to take this one on. Uh, objection, your honor. Recall as facts, not in evidence. Speculation. This whole fucking system is out of order. I have listening skills. Shut up, judge. I rest my case. A maximum 90 seconds after Kennedy is shot, patrolman Marion Baker runs into Oswald in that second floor lunchroom. Hey, you! You know this man is in employee. Yes, he is. The president's been shot. But what the Warren Commission would have us believe is that after firing three bolt-action shots in 5.6 seconds... Or, you know, 8.3... Oswald then leaves three cartridges neatly side-by-side in the firing nest. Wipes the rifle clear of fingerprints. Stashes the rifle on the other side of the lock. Sprints down five flights of stairs past witnesses Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles, who never see him. He shows up cool and calm on the second floor in front of Patrolman Baker. All this within a maximum of 90 seconds of the shooting. This is actually true, at least in terms of Baker meeting Oswald on the second floor within 90 seconds. What it doesn't point out is that in a reenactment for the Warren Commission, stand-ins for Oswald were able to make that same journey Costner just described at a normal-paced walk in 78 seconds. Running, they did it in 46. As for Ms. Adams and Stiles, it turns out they didn't actually head downstairs until three or four minutes after the third shot based on comparisons among their and other employees' testimonies. So they would never have been on the stairs when Oswald was. Assuming he is a soul assassin, 
Oswald is now free to escape from the building. The longer he delays, the more chance the building will be sealed by police. Is he guilty? Does he walk out the nearest staircase? No. He buys a Coke. And at a slow pace, spotted by Mrs. Reed on the second floor, he strolls out the more distant front exit, where the cops have gathered. You know, it's almost as if he's trying to remain calm and not draw attention to himself or his crime. Mysterious. Oddly, considering that three shots have been fired from there, nobody seals the book depository for ten more minutes. Oswald slips out, as do several other employees. Wait, you can't have it both ways. Either shots came from elsewhere, in which case the conspiracists would want to draw attention to the depository by locking it down ASAP, or the shots did come from the depository, in which case there would not be a conspiracy, and any delay in closing the depository would logically be explained by concern for public safety, bureaucratic inertia, and understandable chaos and confusion. Of course, when he realized something had gone wrong and the president had been killed, he knew there was a problem. He may have even known he was the patsy. Uh, objection again! The president killed, in spite of his warning, the phone call that never came. Perhaps fear now came to Oswald for the very first time. Oh, this bullshit. So an FBI security clerk in New Orleans named William S. Walter claimed, five years after the fact, that on November 17, 1963, he received a teletype from headquarters warning that they had credible info of an assassination attempt planned for the president's Dallas trip. A search of 59 FBI field offices yielded no evidence that this document ever existed or was sent to anyone. Walter later produced a copy, which was then proved to be a forgery. So Oswald returned to his rooming house around 1 p.m., a half hour after the assassination. A man shot the president. He puts on his jacket, grabs his 38 revolver, and leaves at 104. Officer Tippett is shot between 110 and 115, about a mile away. Oswald is next seen by shoe salesman Johnny Brewer, lurking along Jefferson Avenue goes into the Texas theater, possibly his prearranged meeting point. But though he has $14 in his pocket, he does not buy the 75-cent ticket. And Brewer has the cashier call the police. In response to the cashier's call, at least 30 officers in a fleet of patrol cars descend on the movie theater. Now this has to be the most remarkable example of police intuition since the Reichstag fire. And I don't buy it. They knew. Someone knew Oswald was going to be there. First, that gratuitous Nazi reference to the Reichstag was gross. Second, maybe so many officers descended on the place so quickly because they were already about a half mile away at the site where Oswald had just murdered Officer J.D. Tippett. Not exactly surprising that they'd respond to a nearby sighting of a suspect who fit the cop killer's description very quickly and with overwhelming force. By the time the sun rises the next morning, he is booked for murdering the president. The whole country, fueled by the media, assumes he is guilty. Under the guise of a patriotic nightclub owner out to spare Jackie Kennedy from having to testify at a trial, Jack Ruby is shown into an underground garage by one of his inside men on the Dallas police force. And when he is ready, Lee Harvey Oswald is brought out like a sacrificial lamb and nicely disposed of as an enemy of the people.
Jesus, that whole thing was just embarrassing. Based on all available evidence, Ruby was both impulsive and violent enough to spontaneously decide to off Oswald, unstable enough to do it for some weird combination of sparing Jackie a trial, misplaced patriotism, and a will to prove that, in his words, a Jew has guts. And most importantly, Ruby's crossing path with Oswald was not a conspiracy, but a weird coincidence of timing. Ruby was familiar with the police station as he'd hung out with local cops. He made his own way up a hidden ramp to the garage where they happened to be transferring Oswald, getting to the top four or five seconds before Oswald passed by. In Ruby's own words to the Warren Commission, If it had been three seconds later, I would have missed this person. Had I gone the way I was supposed to go, straight down Main Street, I would never have met this fate because the difference in meeting this fate was 30 seconds one way or the other. What kind of scenario is that for a conspiracy to dispose of a patsy? The American public has yet to see the real x-rays and photographs of the autopsy. Why? There are hundreds of documents that could help prove this conspiracy. Why are they being withheld or burned by the government? Each time my office or you, the people, have asked those questions, demanded crucial evidence, the answer from on high has always been national security. Again, quickly, the autopsy photos haven't been released because the Kennedy family requested they not be, as they are disturbing, and they don't want them plastered everywhere. However, there are detailed, realistic, horrifying drawings of all autopsy photos available for everyone. They're reproduced in the Warren Report. While the nation hadn't seen the Zapruder film in 1969 when the trial was going on, it was broadcast and widely available by 1975. And as for those documents, the Warren Commission actually wanted them to be released as soon as possible. They were only being held based on standard policies for government records, under the rules of which confidential materials are, by default, held for 75 years. Thanks to legislation spurred at least in part by this film, nearly all of these records have now been released years ahead of schedule. And as a result, the conspiracy community has produced solid, tangible, smoking gun evidence of the real plot. And we'll hear it starting... Now. Yep. As suspected by those who support the Warren Commission's findings, the documents have shed some additional light on the events and are certainly important for historians, but they haven't turned up any credible evidence for a conspiracy. And with that, the defense rests. Look. There's absolutely no way we can provide a comprehensive refutation of every Kennedy conspiracy claim. But hopefully the above gives you an idea of how questionable the most recognizable pro-conspiracy document, at its most confident-sounding, can be. But before we move on to talk about the real history behind the trial that Stone gave a hagiography handjob to in his film, we want to touch on a few other popular JFK conspiracies. Rose Sheremy You might remember this as the scene that arrestingly kicks off the movie JFK, where a woman is pushed from a moving car, eventually found and brought to a hospital. You fucking asshole! You come back here! You're going up the house. Friday. They're gonna kill Kennedy. Well, 
Her name, or at least her favorite pseudonym, was Rose Sheremy, and she's one of the witnesses whose story Buliosi thinks Posner gave raw deal in his book Case Closed. Reading this inter-historian slapfight is highly amusing. Jesus, what's wrong with you? But the point is, Posner implies that the doctor, who's depicted in the film as overhearing Sheremy's ravings days before the assassination, didn't actually see Sheremy or hear her story until after the assassination. Buliosi demonstrates this isn't true, but on the other hand, doesn't give an inch on the veracity of Sheremy's story or on the irresponsibility of the way Stone presents it. As he narrates it, Sheremy was brought to the ER after being hit by a passing car because she was wandering down the street in a drugged-up haze. Note, not pushed from a car. And that, after she was admitted, her first babblings stated, in no uncertain terms, She was going to pick up some money, pick up her baby, and kill Kennedy. Later, her story implied that some men with whom she claimed she had recently kept company, and who were Italians, or resembled Italians, would actually do the killing. Then, killing Kennedy was a rumor that she had heard was going around the criminal underworld. She eventually claimed to have been a stripper for Ruby at a club called The Pink Door. Which she never ran, and which may never have existed. And that's why she knew that Ruby and Oswald were, in the parlance of the time, queer sons of bitches, who had been shacking up for years. We're quoting here. As Mr. Buliosi notes, even though the HSCA followed a huge number of tenuous conspiracy leads, they abandoned this one because it was so flimsy, relying on the memory of Sheremy, who was a heroin addict who was frequently disoriented, and whose rap sheet included 51 arrests, ranging from public drunkenness, vacancy, prostitution, and driving under the influence of narcotics, to larceny, driving a stolen auto across state lines, and arson. Plus, her story changed constantly. So anyway, there's plenty of reason to distrust Sheremy's testimony without fudging the timeline. Shame on you, Mr. Posner. And to think, we framed your rookie card. Another of the more popular theories not touched on directly in the Costner screed is that the mafia was behind the assassination. This idea, which had some small currency in the years after the assassination, got kicked into high gear in the wake of the HSCA investigation several of whose members were convinced of a mafia connection. This conclusion has the advantage over the other theories of at least involving actual criminals in its conspiracy. And the most cogent of the pro-mafia arguments is probably that put forward by Dan Moldea, who we referred to earlier as the hero of the RFK assassination. He's the guy who figured out how to square the circle with Sirhan's murder of the senator, covered extensively in our last episode. So we're going to use his excellent book about the mysteriously disappeared former Teamster leader, the Hoffa Wars, as our touchstone for the mafia-focused JFK conspiracies. It's not as if Moldea is completely convinced that the mafia had Kennedy killed. It seems more like he's angered that everyone from the Warren Commission to the HSCA failed, in his opinion, to properly follow up on evidence that should have made certain mafia figures into suspects. For example, There's solid evidence, as well, that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficante, three of the most important targets for criminal prosecution by the Kennedy administration, had discussions with their subordinates about murdering President Kennedy. Associates of Hoffa, Traficante, and Marcello were in direct contact with Jack Ruby, the Dallas nightclub owner who killed the lone assassin of the president. The book focuses on Hoffa, the infamous Teamster leader and organized crime figure, whose disappearance in 1975 has never been solved and has led to about a million jokes your dad or grandfather has made. According to a, a, according to a new book by the driver of the former Teamster boss, Jimmy Hoffa, this guy says Jimmy Hoffa was whacked by the mob. That's what he said. He says the mob killed Jimmy Hoffa. What a shocker, huh? <laughs> 
See, I had my money on alien abduction. I can't believe. Because Hoffa in particular really hated the Kennedy brothers, especially the anti-mafia crusading Bobby, there's plenty of juicy stuff about his actions and plans, both covert and open, against the then-Attorney General. For example, in September of 1962, a Teamsters official turned government informant related a conversation he'd had with Hoffa the previous month. Reportedly, Hoffa had been evaluating the merits of two assassination plans for Robert Kennedy. In the one he preferred, Kennedy's Virginia estate would be firebombed using plastic explosives. Hoffa was careful to note that even if Kennedy somehow survived the explosion, he, and all his damn kids, would be incinerated since the place will burn after it blows up. Charming. There are other extremely tenuous mob connections that Moldea points out, like the possibility that David Ferry, who we'll learn more about in the Garrison trial, was on the payroll of New Orleans Mafia Don Carlos Marcello. But given that there's no real reason, outside of Jim Garrison's mind, to imagine that Ferry and Oswald knew each other, beyond a chance meeting, this allegation doesn't add up to much. Instead, the key reason, as Moldea points out, that Hoffa ended up associated with the assassination story is the fact that Jack Ruby killed Oswald. And Ruby had, as it turns out, been in contact with Barney Baker, a Hoffa enforcer from Chicago, when Ruby was seeking help for a labor dispute at his Dallas clubs. In spite of the fact that the Teamsters was near the top of the list of organizations that would end up benefiting from Kennedy's death, Moldea continues, they were never fully investigated by the Warren Commission, not even the Ruby Baker calls. Ruby wasn't asked about them, and nobody ever discussed certain discrepancies with Baker, either. Moldea asks some interesting questions about these calls. Why did Ruby think that Jimmy Hoffa's men could help him with his small-time nightclub? How did he manage to have the unlisted numbers of people such as Barney Baker? Why did the calls occur at the times they did? Why did Baker deny receiving a second call from Ruby? If he didn't field the call, who did and why? In crafting potential answers, Moldea points to Ruby's friendships from his Chicago days in the late 40s, which included notorious hitmen and to the rather ironic fact that the Warren Commission quoted some of those very same guys as character witnesses confirming that Ruby's underworld ties weren't significant. However, even after raising these interesting questions, and in spite of the fact that the man personally believes the mob was involved, he comes down on the side of caution in seeing how it all adds up. Regardless of Ruby's bizarre telephone calls, and regardless of this guy knows that guy, therefore theories, the subject of a possible connection of Jamie Hoffa and the underworld to President Kennedy's assassination is, of course, highly speculative. But it has so far been as poor in streetwide methodical investigative work as it has been rich in tempting conspiracy theory melodrama and chilling irony. One aspect, however, goes far beyond speculation. The cold bureaucratic numbers that represent the flaming heat which the Kennedy administration brought to bear on Jamie Hoffa's criminal empire and an organized crime in general. When you get down to the core of Moldea's accusation, it's basically a more sane version of many other assassination theories. These people benefited so much from Kennedy's death, it seems weird that they didn't have anything to do with it. He quotes Ralph Salerno, a police mafia expert, who notes, The bullet that killed John Kennedy killed Bob Kennedy's dream to destroy the organized crime society. Or, to simply quote the thug himself, Hoffa told a reporter on the day Ruby killed Oswald, Bobby Kennedy is just another lawyer now. As you might expect, there are responses to the Mafia allegations, pointing out that while there were tantalizing leads, there's not much meat on those bones. For example, Posner asks why, if Ruby had a contract on Oswald, he wouldn't have shot him during that weird midnight press conference, when the target was just a few feet away and Ruby, by his own testimony, was armed. Curious. 
In addition, one of Ruby's first jailhouse visitors was Joseph Campisi, reputedly Dallas' number two mafia figure. He knew Ruby well and visited along with his wife. No crime reporter or author Posner interviewed could recall an instance where a mafia figure arranged a contract and then met with the shooter in jail. Giuliosi, while generally in agreement, chides Posner for his suggestion that the mafia may have wanted to kill Kennedy, but Oswald beat them to it. Giuliosi isn't having it. These experienced thugs hired Ruby the blabbermouth, and then their hired gun shoots Oswald in the guts, not two taps in the back of the head, in front of witnesses so he'll definitely be caught, and those witnesses are all law enforcement? The only similarity between Ruby's actions and standard mob operating procedure is the fact that a handgun was involved. But that's also the weapon used in the majority of U.S. gun homicides. And over the entire history of the mafia in the U.S., they have no history of hitting public officials, Hoffa's bloody fantasies aside, and they've gone to significant lengths to avoid doing so. Before we leave this topic, we want to offer a charming note that Teamster leader Frank Chavez wrote to a mourning Robert Kennedy. Sir, this is for your information. The undersigned is going to solicit the membership of our union that each one donate whatever they can afford to maintain, clean, beautify, and supply with flowers at the grave of Lee Harvey Oswald. You can rest assured contributions will be unanimous. What a classy outfit. Our last stop before dealing with the Garrison trial is the idea that whatever mechanism he used to attain his Macbethian aims, the true mastermind behind the Kennedy assassination was, in fact, his successor, Lyndon Baines Johnson. There are plenty of sources to choose from when it comes to this general theory, but the most over-the-top histrionic version has got to be LBJ, the mastermind of the JFK assassination, by Philip Nelson. By this point, you'll be familiar with the construction of this set of conspiracist allegations. Let me guess. There are apocryphal witnesses who kind of sort of support the allegations. Johnson was a real asshole, and come on, he benefited so much from the assassination, he simply had to be involved. Yeah, that's the gist of it. Or as Nelson puts it, A. Who had the most to gain? B. Who had the least to lose? C. Who had the means to do it? D. Who had the apparatus in place to subsequently cover it up? E. Who had the kind of narcissistic, sociopathic personality capable of rationalizing the action as acceptable and necessary, together with the resolve and determination to see it through? You'll note that these are, as near as damn it, the same criteria that Moldea, albeit more conservatively, applies to the Mafia explanation. But here, just as there, it's basically all hand-waving. Even if you grant that Johnson had the motive, the evidence of culpability remains thin on the ground. Nelson heavily quotes from Robert Caro's ongoing multi-volume biography of Johnson to paint a selective portrait of an almost comically Iago-esque court schemer and murderous nightmare of power-hungry avarice, which, to be fair, does accurately describe some aspects of Johnson's character. But it's hardly a full description of the man who also risked all of his lifetime of political capital to pass historic and revolutionary civil rights and anti-poverty legislation. But in Nelson's imagination, there is no limit to the machinations that his LBJ is capable of. For example, Indeed, it can now be posited that John F. Kennedy's fatal mistake occurred over three years before he died. His agonizing and reluctant decision to accede to the threat of blackmail by Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover on July 14, 1960, at the Democratic Convention, allowed Johnson to be named as the vice president nominee. This action put Johnson next in line to succeed JFK, an essential step in his plot to become President of the United States. See? When you don't have to provide evidence of your assertions, you can make your villain into some sort of superhuman Lex Luthor-esque mastermind, maneuvering into the vice presidency knowing that a short three years later, 
He will cause an unreliable dipshit, then in the process of defecting to the Soviet Union, to shoot his new running mate from the corner of a building that said dipshit won't get access to until a few weeks before the fatal moment. It's almost hard to believe. We collected lots of notes from this turgid mess of a book, but we have a lot more crazy to cover and there's not a lot more insight to be gained here. So let's move on to the greatest of all conspiracy theories, the one proffered by Jim Garrison, reiterated by Oliver Stone, and recurring in the fever dreams of countless conspiracy theorists since. We're not sure what to call this, given how weird and amorphous it is, but let's go with the CIA, FBI, Secret Service, plus whoever the fuck else you want to throw in the mix. Conspiracy. Since we're now fully moving into the realm of the real historical former New Orleans DA Jim Garrison, as opposed to the Kevin Costner, Mr. DA Goes to Washington version from the Stone film, it's worth noting that Garrison never really felt the need to tie himself down to one particular perspective on who, exactly, was responsible for the assassination. As Peter Knight notes, all of the details were subject to constant amendment based on Garrison's latest theories, as well as the composition of his audience. He developed a detailed assassination scenario involving as many as 16 shooters, with a fatal headshot having been fired from a storm drain just in front of the presidential limousine. The specifics of Garrison's case are less important than the general effect they had on reorientating conspiracy-minded assassination studies. First, by claiming a link between Kennedy's death and the escalation of the war in Vietnam, it tended to infuse assassination studies with a romantic nostalgia for Kennedy. Second, it helped make a conspiracist stance on the assassination an indispensable part of anti-war activist credentials. It's this connection with the anti-Vietnam movement that attracted Stone to Garrison's case as the subject for his film. Knight draws out this connection, noting that the movie, all of Stone's claims that it's designed to present multiple perspectives aside, actually makes a stridently argumentative case for a specific point of view. In a key moment in the film, Costner's Garrison travels to Washington, D.C. to meet with a mysterious figure known only as X, played with appropriate mystery by Donald Sutherland. X then spins a tale that uses a very selective version of Kennedy's political trajectory to argue that Kennedy's fate was sealed by his determination to bring an end to the Vietnam War and, while he was at it, the Cold War. But the most interesting part of this weird pause in the film's action is that X insists to Costner Garrison that he should focus his attention on why the assassination was perpetrated and not how it happened. Noting the how is just scenery for the suckers. But the majority of the film is absolutely obsessed with the how aspects. See, for example, the closing argument segment we covered earlier. This speech by the fictional X is the only way Stone can even pretend to attach his preferred motive to the assassination trivia and minutiae that take up the rest of the movie. We've explored from several angles the version of Jim Garrison and his unprecedented prosecution of local businessman Clay Shaw in the late 1960s that moviegoers saw almost three decades ago. Now we'll see what really happened in the city that Kerr forgot when Jim Garrison decided he would be the man to solve the JFK assassination. We're sure many of you have experienced the unique weirdness of New Orleans firsthand, whether at a debauched college visit to the French Quarter, a drunken bachelor party, a boozy afternoon at Jazz Fest. Basically, what we're saying is, you were probably drunk. But, given that New Orleans is our ancestral homeland, we're here to tell you that no matter what perspectives you developed through beer-colored glasses, it's one of the most wonderful and unique cities on Earth, a jewel of culture, food, and music, where life moves at a completely different rhythm. 
It's also super duper weird. It's impossible to convey just how weird it is in this context. That could easily be its own podcast series. But here are a few data points. One. It's the major city of the only state in the Union that doesn't function under a legal system derived from English common law. It's under Napoleonic Code. If you want to practice law in New Orleans, you have to take a completely different bar exam. Also, the counties are called parishes. Two. In 1992, the gubernatorial election was contested by a former governor, Edwin Edwards, whose previous terms of office had been marred by a variety of corruption scandals, and David Duke, a former Grand Wizard of the KKK. The anti-Duke forces printed up bumper stickers that read, Vote for the Crook, It's Important. Aside on Edwards, he was eventually convicted for a nearly operatic series of bribery scandals arising from his fourth term as governor, though perhaps his finest moment was when he assured journalists before his 1983 comeback win for a third term that, quote, the only way I can lose this election is if I'm caught in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. If that's not enough to convince you that Louisiana, and especially New Orleans, is a weird place... Try this one on for size. One of the two most important parades on Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras Day, and by far the most fun, is Zulu. A parade organized and run entirely by African-American crew members, established in 1916, it's one of the most straightforward and joyous celebrations of the centrality of African-Americans to the unique culture of New Orleans. Also, everyone in the crew, whether black or white, is required to wear blackface makeup during the parade. Wait, what? Yeah. And their costumes often involve grass skirts. I'm not comfortable with this. And they throw plastic spears and hand-decorated coconuts. Jesus, is this a parade or a hate crime? I know this sounds bizarre if you've never seen it, but trust us. If you ever get to go to Zulu, you'll never see a bigger, more positive affirmation of African-American culture. But yeah, it's a weird thing that can only exist in this weird city. We're talking about a place where it is literally true that depending on the part of town and the time of year, you might easily see a parade of parasol-waving revelers dancing in front of a brass band pass down your street. And if you see it, you're welcome to join in. It's pretty much the best. But it's also a place that has a unique tolerance for wildly entertaining, larger-than-life, frequently corrupt public figures, which is why the Jim Garrison phenomenon could maybe only have happened in that city. The Clayshaw trial is insanely complicated, especially because, in spite of Garrison and Stone's insistence to the contrary, it has so little to do with the Kennedy assassination. But we're going to try to lay out what happened as succinctly as possible, depending for our factual review almost entirely on Patricia Lambert's eminently readable, hugely informative book on the trial, False Witness. So, how did all this bullshit start? Probably the very first domino to fall was simply when the district attorney of New Orleans Parish, Jim Garrison, learned that the accused assassin of President Kennedy was a New Orleans native. But this story centers around the actions of two men in the wake of the shooting, Jack Martin, a local private investigator, and Dean Andrews, a bottom-scraping attorney. We'll take them one at a time. For those of you who've seen this movie, we're going to identify each of the main players in this farce with the actor who played him in JFK. No, we're not using archaic gender pronouns. It's all dudes. Jack Martin. The incomparable Jack Lemon. Was a marginally employed investigator who frequently worked for Guy Bannister. Ed Asner. Who in turn was the former Chicago chief of the FBI, former assistant superintendent of the New Orleans police, a private investigator, and a full-time anti-communist cold warrior. 
You may recall that Lemon got the shit pistol whipped out of him by Asner at the beginning of the film, the night of the assassination. Stone wants you to think this is because Lemon slash Martin was too close to the truth about the conspiracy, but Lambert convincingly suggests that the conflict was over long-distance phone calls that Martin had been charging to Bannister's office. Martin went to the hospital, gave a statement about the incident to the cops, and slept it off at home. The next day, Martin had a conversation over drinks with a friend that ended up focusing on a local named David Ferry. A weirdly eyebrow-free Joe Pesci. Martin was no fan of Ferry, and somehow he got it into his head that Ferry, who suffered from alopecia, which caused the hair all over his body to fall out, had a rifle that kinda looked like the one that the news anchors were saying had been used to kill Kennedy. Considering that Ferry's assassination involvement would become a cornerstone of the eventual case, it bears repeating here that this is literally the entire basis of his involvement. A story concocted by one drunk. Martin, while continuing to drink, started calling around the city and spreading his baseless allegations about Ferry, who may have been the one who dimed out Martin's illicit, long-distance charges to Bannister in the first place. He learned that Ferry had been in the Civil Air Patrol, a civilian adjunct of the Air Force, a group that Oswald had also briefly joined during high school. This fact was seamlessly rolled into Martin's ever-growing tale, which he repeated in one phone call after another, spreading the word over the weekend about Ferry's involvement in the assassination. According to Martin, Ferry had taught Oswald to fire foreign weapons. He had flown Oswald to Dallas. He was communicating with Oswald, and had been with Oswald in Dallas within the last 10 days. Ferry had said Kennedy should be killed. He had outlined plans to accomplish it, and he'd given Oswald a post-hypnotic suggestion to do the deed. Martin also claimed that when Oswald was arrested, he had in his possession Ferry's library card, and he told virtually everyone he spoke to that Ferry was homosexual. Except for the latter, all of Martin's information was fabricated. As a result, suddenly the local press was at Ferry's door. Imagine being this poor guy, gay, deeply religious, supremely conflicted, hairless, and all of a sudden, for no reason you can understand, caught up in rumors about the recent assassination of the president. Garrison, the glory-hungry district attorney, eventually got wind of these rumors and sent the cops after Ferry. They found no evidence, and eventually Martin recanted his nonsense first to the FBI and then to the Secret Service. He admitted suffering from telephonitis when he drank. It's often reported that Ferry was linked to the assassination that weekend by various reports, the sheer number lending credibility to the charges. What few seem to realize is that all of them originated from a single source, Jack Martin's red-hot telephone line. So even if this ended here, it would be a weirdly only-in-Nola story with improbable action, unbelievable characters, etc. But there's another piece of this pre-Garrison puzzle that was developing simultaneously, The Wild Tales of Dean Andrews, Esquire. In the movie, Andrews was played by John Candy, and if you thought the late comedic genius's portrayal of the lawyer was over the top with its hepcat lingo, If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bon Boyardino. I mean like permanent. I mean like a bullet in my head, you dig? You're a mouse fighting a gorilla. Candy's as dead as that crab meat. You've clearly never read any direct quotes from Dean Andrews. He was, as depicted in the movie, a big guy who was an acquaintance of Garrison's and a small-time lawyer with a love for attention and, like Martin, a severe case of telephonitis. As it happens, he was in the hospital over the assassination weekend under the influence of drugs he was taking to treat pneumonia. During this period, he had a series of phone calls in which he went from wishing he was representing Oswald, as that would make him a famous lawyer, to telling his secretary that he was representing Oswald. 
Said secretary, shocked and dismayed as may be expected, asked Andrews who had hired him. He responded with a single name off the top of his head, Bertrand. Later, while he was jawing with another lawyer to gauge his interest in being part of Andrews' entirely imaginary Oswald defense team, his supposed client was gunned down on live TV. This was, as Lambert puts it, a case of good news and bad news. The bad news was that the client was dead and Andrews had no one to defend. The good news was that the client was dead and Andrews could fabricate any story and Lee Harvey Oswald couldn't deny it. So, and please note, Andrews was still doped up and in the hospital at this point. He then called the FBI, not only claiming that this imaginary Bertrand had hired him, but that Oswald had showed up three times the previous summer asking legal advice, accompanied by five or so men Andrews only identified as homosexuals. Again, this was after Oswald's death, so who was going to contradict him? He also fatefully decided to give Bertrand the first name Clay, and a description that, except for the gay part, didn't resemble Clay Shaw at all. At this point, we need to mention the real-life figure of Clay Shaw, played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie. The real guy was a prominent, popular, and apparently totally innocent businessman, whom Garrison would eventually peg as the central figure in a plot on the president's life, based on Dean Andrews' imagination, and apparently also on the fact that Shaw was gay and closeted. After getting an earful of Andrews' nonsense over the weekend of the assassination, the feds launched a massive 10-day manhunt for the mysterious Clay Bertrand, which unsurprisingly led nowhere since he was made up. Once out of the hospital, the potentially drugged, potentially just bullshitting Andrews claimed in subsequent interviews with authorities that he couldn't remember phoning the Phoebes or the Secret Service and that the whole thing seemed like a dream. Maneuvering skillfully to extricate himself, Andrews said that he had no memory of calling a secretary and was unable to account for the name Bertrand. Now, up to this point, essentially everyone in authority has behaved responsibly. Two fabulists, both hopped up on mind-altering substances, made wildly irresponsible phone calls over the weekend of the assassination. The responding agencies, both local and federal, investigated allegations arising from these calls and found nothing substantive. Hell, even D.A. Garrison dropped the whole thing for a while. Unfortunately, that calm wouldn't last. Over the next couple of years, Garrison and his team started pursuing a secret investigation, exploring a few topics, trying to identify the mysterious Clay Bertrand, for example, but also probing the admittedly odd trip that the admittedly odd ferry took with a couple of friends on the night of the assassination. They drove, through a pouring rainstorm, to Houston, Texas. About a six-hour drive. To go ice skating. Seriously, that's apparently what they did. And yes, this is weird. But we've already stipulated that Ferry is a weird guy. That doesn't make his trip connect to the Kennedy assassination. Garrison, though, developed a theory that Ferry, a former pilot who had his own plane, was actually supposed to be the getaway flyer for Oswald to spirit him out of Dallas, and that the Houston ice rink was the command center where Ferry contacted all of the other plotters after Oswald's arrest, presumably to organize the Ruby intervention that Sunday. Garrison and co. questioned and harassed Ferry, the stress of which may have been a factor in the man's death from cerebral hemorrhage, which, though it was declared a death by natural causes by the medical examiner, Garrison's staff maintained to be a suicide, or potentially, a murder staged to look like a suicide. Based on two different pieces of unfinished correspondence found in Ferry's apartment, neither of which appears to be suicide notes. Unless, that is, you're Jim Garrison. Ferry's death couldn't have come at a better time. The DA's investigation had basically run aground on the shoals of a total lack of evidence. 
declaring that Ferry was one of history's most important individuals and had long since confirmed he was involved in events culminating in the assassination of President Kennedy, Garrison embarked on the second phase of his drive to prosecute the man he had decided was, in reality, Clay Bertrand. Who was, please remember, an imaginary person dreamed up by a drug-addled lawyer. That man was Clay Shaw, a popular and well-respected pillar of the city's business community who had been instrumental in the development of the then-new trademark building downtown. His private life as a closeted gay man was well-known among his peers, but of course not spoken of, this being the 60s. You may be wondering how Garrison came to this conclusion about Shaw and Bertrand. Join the club. In fact, a reporter for Life magazine assigned to cover the case recalls the moment Garrison revealed his stunning theory of the true identity of the mystery man in his office a few days before Christmas of 66. As soon as they receded, Garrison announced that he had deduced the identity of Clay Bertrand. One, Bertrand is a homosexual. Two, Bertrand speaks Spanish. Three, his first name is Clay. Then he triumphantly flipped up a photograph that was lying face down on his desk. It was a picture of Clay Shaw. Shaw fit these criteria, therefore Shaw was Bertrand. Jesus, this guy was a DA? Yeah. Like I said, it's a very strange town. Anyway, with Ferry gone, Garrison needed some other witness to justify his baseless persecution of Clay Shaw. Enter Perry Russo. A friend of Ferry's, Russo had recently recalled to a reporter that Ferry had made some passing comment about how he was gonna get Kennedy soon, but Russo thought this talk was of a piece with how many people, especially around the South, spoke about Kennedy. He kinda sorta identified Oswald to one of Garrison's investigators as looking like Ferry's former roommate after a lot of prompting, but others have pointed out that his physical description actually fit another man, James Llewellyn, who was, you know known to be one of Ferry's former roommates. Oh, and that photo of Oswald that Russo identified was actually touched up so that it looked fatter, scruffier, and lightly bearded, so that the assassin would at least kind of resemble Russo's description. Because Garrison's team wanted to squeeze more out of Russo's story than his initial reflections provided, they repeatedly drugged and hypnotized him. We've previously discussed the problems inherent in hypnotism and other techniques for dredging up supposed repressed memories. See our QAnon episode for more. But Garrison had no qualms about putting Russo on the stand to connect Ferry, Oswald, and perhaps most importantly, Clay Shaw, even though Russo reportedly had grave doubts about his own semi-coerced identification of Shaw as part of Ferry's social circle. In reality, the two men didn't know each other. While he was working the Russo angle, Garrison was also leaning hard on Dean Andrews to revert to his original made-up stories of Clay Bertrand hiring him to defend Oswald. Quick pause here. If Garrison's theory was right, and Shaw was in fact masterminding the assassination from New Orleans, why would he intervene to hire a lawyer for an assassin who he would have to know was scheduled to be killed by Ruby two days later? And why didn't anyone in Garrison's office point out the obvious flaw in their otherwise airtight case? But to his frustration, Andrews refused to play ball with the Shaw-Bertrand allegations, or, in Andrews' own bizarre hepcat lingo, He wanted to shuck me like corn, pluck me like a chicken, stew me like an oyster. Andrews, amazed at the DA's sheer credulousness, wanted to see if Garrison would just swallow anything anyone told him that fit his theories. To that end, Andrews created a fictional Cuban guerrilla fighter named Manny Garcia Gonzalez. 
Shortly thereafter, Garrison announced this entirely fictitious individual as the trigger man in the assassination, accused him of selling narcotics, and told Andrews he had had this man arrested. Andrews quickly convinced Garrison that whatever poor schlub he had actually arrested was the wrong man. Or, in his own words, and I just love making Dana say this stuff, The right ha-ha, but the wrong ho-ho. Eventually, in spite of his glaring lack of evidence, Garrison arrested Shaw and charged him with conspiracy to murder JFK. During the subsequent search of Shaw's house, Garrison made sure to catalog specific items recounted by Lambert. Included were a black gown, a knit hat, a black hood and cape, a chain, and five whips. Garrison let a photographer for Life magazine shoot pictures of these, though of course they couldn't possibly have anything to do with even Garrison's highly fanciful version of the assassination. They were meant to smear Shaw as a queer, the broader public not being as understanding as the cosmopolitan French Quarter crowd Shaw normally associated with. The heady irony in all of this, as a friend later noted, was that if there was one person in New Orleans who believed in John F. Kennedy, it was Clay Shaw. Lambert notes that Garrison's investigation could perhaps only have gone forward under these conditions. No reliable witnesses, wild accusations, and national mainstream magazines like the Saturday Evening Post lambasting the investigation as having no foundation in reality in the city of New Orleans, where, as she puts it, The two newspapers spoke in unison, where Garrison's power surpassed even the governor's, and where unethical, irrational behavior by elected officials was rooted in the region's historical DNA. There's also a great deal of evidence that Garrison's team was offering what amounted to bribes for the testimony they sought. One attorney secretly recorded Garrison's men offering his client a coveted job with an airline, the chance to be the investigation's hero, and three grand. When these men found out they had been recorded, they threatened him. I don't want to get into any shit, and before I do, I'll put a hot load of lead up your ass. The New Orleans Police Department later concluded these guys hadn't violated any rules of conduct. While the local newspapers and powers that be were turning a blind eye, NBC did an expose on Garrison called the JFK Conspiracy, the case of Jim Garrison. Many Americans doubt the findings of the Warren Commission. Only one American has had and used legal powers to investigate those findings. And that one is Jim Garrison, the District Attorney of New Orleans. His investigation has made headlines for four months. This is an examination of that investigation. In the Stone film, this is depicted as a hit piece, but in reality, it comes off as responsible investigative journalism surveying a nearly unbelievable abuse of power. Finally, Garrison brought his case in 1969, and two years to the day from his initial arrest, a jury finally returned a verdict of not guilty in about 45 minutes. In spite of the terrible way he had been treated, Shaw, who seems like a really good guy, never hated Garrison, who he spoke of as the big shambling behemoth, driven as he is by the lust for power and attention. But try as I would, I could only feel that this poor son of a bitch needs help far worse than I do. Not that the not guilty verdict even slowed Garrison down. He immediately re-indicted Shaw, this time based on an accusation that his testimony in the first trial, that he didn't know Ferry or Oswald, was perjury. Garrison lost that one too, and eventually Shaw won an injunction barring him from ever prosecuting Shaw again. Unfortunately, weakened by the stress of the experience, Shaw wasn't able to fight the cancer that ate away at him, and he died in 1974. Garrison, though he was defeated by Harry Connick Sr. in the next district attorney's race, yes, the dad of the piano guy, was eventually elected to a judgeship on the Circuit Court of Appeals, which he held until his death. He died never doubting that he was in the right. What an asshole! 
The Garrison trial left a smoking crater in the middle of the assassination research community. Their most prominent exponent was revealed as a fraud and a zealot. The other skeptics eventually brushed themselves off, picked up the pieces, and kept pushing their theories forward, which is the situation that continues to this day. And that's weird, because everyone knows that a caller to the legendary Art Bell show solved the whole thing decades ago. And uh, that's why Kennedy had to be killed. And it's very unfortunate. That's why they even arranged to have the killer uh, to be uh, elusive. In fact, it was not even uh, Oswald. Oswald is, 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 as a matter of fact, still alive and living in Australia today. The actual killer of Kennedy was Marilyn Monroe. Uh, who had Marilyn Monroe? Yes, she was the gunner on the grassy you know, and her death was faked in 1962, and in order to train her to be an assassin. You're beginning to push the limits of my uh, my credibility meter here. I mean, come on, Marilyn Monroe's death was faked, and she killed Kennedy. Uh, when they asked for volunteers, she volunteered, but she was already an assassin. It had nothing to do with him personally. Marilyn Monroe was an assassin? Yes. And she worked with a mob in 1962-63, and it was only later she volunteered for that assignment. But she's totally mackerel. In response to the never-ending stream of conspiracist publications, which we noted earlier, many Americans, wisely deciding they didn't want to spend the rest of their lives parsing one obscure theory from another, threw up their hands and decided it was probably some conspiracy that did it, but who gives a shit which one? To quote Knight, The list of theories and suspects began to seem endless. Rioters blamed the CIA, the FBI, renegades from both agencies, the Secret Service, Dallas Police, Cuban exiles, the mafia, Dallas oil millionaires, right-wing Texans, left-wing sympathizers, Corsican mafia, President Johnson, J. Edgar Hoover, Jimmy Hoffa, the military-industrial complex, the international banking cartels, the three hobos picked up in Dealey Plaza right after the shooting, and just about every combination of these groups. The spoof newspaper The Onion captured the sense of a frenzied overproduction of theories in their headline, Kennedy slain by CIA, mafia, Castro, LBJ, Teamsters, Freemasons. President shot 129 times from 43 different angles. Seriously, though, writers have identified nearly 30 gunmen by name as the second, or, depending on the theory, third or fourth shooter at Dealey Plaza. Over the decades, the JFK conspiracy has, more than any other, become its own cloistered academic pursuit, with internecine battles among various sects, attacks, and counterattacks regarding points so absurd they resemble the battles of scholastic philosophy in the Middle Ages, asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin instead of asking whether or not the angels, or even the pin, are there at all. We're far from the first to make an overtly theological comparison. In Case Closed, Professor Josiah Thompson notes that assassination buffs, especially the early ones, were driven by an obsession, and that There's a fantastic way in which the assassination becomes a religious event. There are relics and scriptures and even a holy scene, the killing ground. People make pilgrimages to it. Not only did the practice of JFK theorizing become increasingly strident and quasi-religious in tone, it constantly added new layers of detail, disputation, and abstraction. Knight notes that even stepping into the ongoing debate over various theories requires so much specialized knowledge that it's deterred everyone but the most determined. And, as would be the case with a legitimate academic discipline, the sheer volume of information has led to ever-increasing specialization. These days, a dedicated researcher might focus all of her attention on just the Tippett murder, or only on the firearms involved in the events. Knight again. 
As we have seen in much of the historical discourse on the assassination of JFK, the larger history is often displaced by a near-obsessive focus on small but seemingly symbolic details. And if you can't get enough of the theorizing from the endless stream of publications, forums, and other media, there are JFK conferences for you to attend. You can find all of the books and authors there, but also enjoy keynote speeches, packed quasi-informative sessions about the latest rabbit holes of minutiae that community is diving into, and of course you and your compatriots can, I don't know, exchange Marguerite Oswald's favorite sugar cookie recipes, or whatever. Posner points out that money has inevitably crept into this hobby of assassination research, which really is just awful. Can anybody remember when assassination scholarship was all about the pure, innocent love of ghoulishly combing through the moment-by-moment physics of a man's head exploding as the result of a rifle bullet's impact? Can we get back to those simpler days? Some of the most egregious examples are worth repeating. Dealey Plaza witnesses, at least so still walking around in the early 90s when Posner's book came out, sign autographs for cash, gawkers take paid tours of the key assassination sites, etc. Also, the trade in memorabilia is brisk. Oswald's toe tag from the morgue went for six grand, while the owner of Ruby's gun sold a limited edition of a few thousand bullets fired by it. The cost? A mere five bills each. How can you afford not to buy one? What's the outcome? As you might expect, a bunch of people who ignore and denigrate historical evidence in favor of their pet theories aren't exactly eager to come to a consensus. Thanks to what Knight calls an escalating complexity and incoherence, an infinite regress of suspicion, the best the organizers of a post-conference press release could get the majority of a group of researchers to agree to at the 35th anniversary conference was this. We believe these basic facts in the assassination of President Kennedy and the wounding of Governor John Connolly. There was more than one shooter. There has not been a true investigation of this crime by our government. The intelligence agencies did not give those investigations the information they should have. The assassination case is still open, and research should be ongoing. Pretty weak tea, considering what many of these folks are on the record as believing, no? And yet they couldn't agree with each other. Perhaps because, protestations to the contrary, many of them have built livelihoods on creating and deploying new theories into the field of rhetorical battle. No one wants the dance to stop, because then they'd have to go out and get real jobs. Perhaps that's why they will eagerly latch onto, say, the HSCA's conspiracy findings, but ignore the same body's strong, well-supported conclusions pointing to Oswald's guilt. Also, as Buliosi notes, While these people can't agree, you also don't see them truly picking apart each other's theories the way you would expect, again, from a true academic or historical discipline. But in order for one of these chuckleheads to be right, wouldn't all the others have to be wrong? Think about religion. If you want to know what's wrong with the Quran, ask a fundamentalist Christian. And the New Testament? Quiz a learned mullah. Yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of internecine warfare here. The Mafia guys don't issue screeds attacking the conclusions of the CIA guys, for example. It's almost as if, as long as you don't accept the Warren report, you can be in the club. In real academic disputes, there are long, drawn-out, bitter wars over competing perspectives on, for example, the authorship of Shakespeare. Doesn't seem to be much of that in the conspiracy world. It would go a long way to convincing outsiders like us of the researchers' legitimacy if you could pick up a book by an Oswald was a Soviet plant guy that tore apart the weaknesses of some other Oswald was a completely innocent patsy guy. 
But beyond the commercialization and fetishization of the topic, Night echoes our frequent claim, issued regularly to anyone who will stand still long enough for us to tell them about it, that Kennedy's assassination is, for many, essentially conspiracy theory table stakes. And more, it's the cornerstone of an entire unreal worldview. It's the gateway drug because, especially in its milder mafia or Cubans did it forms, it's just kind of an outre counterfactual historical argument, like what if Hitler hadn't attacked Russia or other History Channel fodder? Night again. Yet theories about the Kennedy assassination have tended to become ever more elaborate, linking together a whole range of conspiracy fears into one grand unified field theory of conspiracy, in which Kennedy's death is claimed to be, say, part of a much larger chain of events that encompasses the other 1960s assassinations, Watergate, the Iran-Contra scandal, and 9-11, or even a vast conspiracy to control all of human history, dating back centuries, led by the ultra-secret forces of the New World Order, in league with the Illuminati, international bankers, and little grey aliens. Some theories represent the enemy not in individual terms, but as an abstract system. Careful listeners will find an echo of basically every topic we've covered in this series in the preceding, as well as the topics for many future episodes. Kennedy and his uniquely violent public death is the thing that connects all of them together in the minds of many adherents, which inevitably brings us back to the crazies. Many of the most prominent figures in the JFK conspiracy world are, as we've seen, fairly weird people. One need look no further than Garrison, and listening to the godfather of the movement, Mark Lane, was described by Wesley Lieberer, a lawyer for the Warren Commission, as being incredible. He talks for five minutes, and it takes an hour to straighten out the record. But there's plenty of even more delicious nut bar to enjoy from this group. For example, longtime researcher Jim Mars has suggested that because Oswald's attitude changed after a turn in the brig during his stint in the Marines, since he was more morose and angry, this may be evidence that he was, in fact, replaced during this period by an identical doppelganger. The fuck you say? Yep. Because that's obviously the simplest explanation. This line of inquiry came to a head when another conspiracist author convinced Marina Oswald to have her husband's body exhumed in 1981, his having convinced her that the person interred there was an imposter. Turned out the body was, in fact, Oswald. Not, of course, that this ended the speculation. Case Closed mentioned that some conspiracists claimed the body of the real Oswald was secretly placed into the imposter's grave before said exhumation. Posner's also got some juicy details on one conspiracist named Lifton, who spent over a decade writing his tome, Best Evidence. During the 60s, Lifton did his own photographic enhancements of grassy knoll shots, concluding that one of the trees had been artificial on the day of assassination, in order to camouflage snipers. In his enhancements, Lifton believed he had spotted a man in a Kaiser Wilhelm helmet, one with an electronic headset, one with a periscope, and another with a machine gun hidden in a hydraulic lift. He thought one of the men resembled General Douglas MacArthur. As we noted earlier, any historical event subjected to this level of scrutiny would have discrepancies. Buliosi's prosecutorial experience once again helps us here. He notes that any law enforcement veteran knows all too well that human memory being what it is, each eyewitness is likely to give a different description of the crime, the perpetrators, hell, even the police's own experts will make mistakes. Ignoring these realities, the almost unwavering modus operandi of the conspiracy theorists in this case has been to focus only on the inevitable discrepancies and inconsistencies arising out of the states and, and works of hundreds upon hundreds of people, as if the discrepancies themselves prove a conspiracy 
never bothering to tell the readers, number one, what they believe precisely did happen, and number two, what solid and irrefutable evidence they have to prove it. I mean, do discrepancies and inconsistencies add up to life as we know it, or to conspiracy, as the theorists would want us to believe? Because the treatment of the Kennedy case has held a unique position in our culture over the past several decades, it's hard to imagine anything else taking up the same psychic space. But for a moment, let's imagine what it might look like if things had gone differently and another presidential assassin had been successful instead. Back to our show of hands, how many of you know that there was an attempt on President Gerald Ford's life? Wait, back up. Show of hands, how many of you youngins know that a guy by that name was once president? That few, huh? Well, he was. He was the VP who took over after Nixon resigned and who held on for a few years until he was beaten by Jimmy Carter in 76. He's notable for being the only president who was never elected either as president or vice president. Weird historical trivia point. Okay, back to the question, who knows that someone took a shot at him? That's not very many hands. How many of you know that in reality, two people took shots at him at different events within a few weeks of each other? That's what I thought. It's true, though, and they were both women, and both failed to even wing him. Karl Marx, Oswald's true beloved, is eminently quotable, and one of his most popular aphorisms is the observation that history repeats itself, first as tragedy, then as farce. Over the years, the Ford hijinks have come to be seen as the farcical replay of the traumatic 60s killings that so racked the nation. The two women responsible, Lynette Squeaky Fromm and Sarah Jane Moore, have become, at most, historical footnotes and trivia answers. But let's imagine for a second that we lived in a world where Kennedy was unscathed and Ford's assassins were successful, sending the country into mourning for our 38th president instead of our 35th. In other words, imagine the scrutiny aimed at Oswald was instead applied to Frum and Moore. What might motivated, conspiracy-friendly researchers uncover about them? For example, both of these women made their assassination attempts in California. Who was responsible for advising President Ford to return so quickly to a state filled with anti-Ford sentiment? Who wanted more to finish the job that Frum had screwed up? Oh, and did we mention that Mrs. Frum got her nickname because she was part of the Manson family? Yeah, it's true. Not only was she one of the weirdos outside the courtroom when Manson and co. were on trial, but she was also staying in a completely different house years later when every other person in that house was arrested in connection with a murder charge. But not her. Why? Did she have powerful friends? Even then, were they moving the pieces into place for a ludicrous failed attempt on a president mostly remembered for pardoning his predecessor and falling down some stairs? Also, Frome met Jimmy Page in 75, which is super weird, isn't it? Maybe. Her reason for pointing a gun at Ford was some half-thought-through nonsense about protecting the trees, but there wasn't even a bullet in the chamber. Was this a false flag attack designed to focus attention on the Manson family and away from the radical Sarah Jane Moore? Hold on. Those are some pretty wild accusations. And what about Miss Moore? By the time of her 1975 attack, she had been divorced five times, with four children. Or was that just the convenient cover story her shadowy handlers gave her? She was fascinated by Patty Hearst, and that heiress's 1974 kidnapping and eventual embrace of the leftist revolutionary Symbionese Liberation Army. Maybe the whole Patty Hearst affair was all designed ahead of time to trigger Sarah Moore's 
previously embedded hypno-programming. Maybe shooting Ford was actually a cover. The only person she actually hit was a taxi driver named John Ludwig. Has anyone really explored that guy's background? Was he a spy? Did he have mafia connections? What don't they want us to know about John Ludwig? How much more of this are we going to suffer through? A little bit more. Did you know the guy who grabbed her gun and may have saved Ford's life is a man named Oliver Sippel, a gay closeted Marine whose private life was exposed and whose relationship with his family was ruined as a result of his heroic actions? This doesn't have to do with a conspiracy, but this guy is an American hero who was the victim of a homophobic society, and we just wanted to raise a toast to his memory. Did you know Ms. Moore escaped from prison in 1979? I hear she was just trying to find some safety so she could reveal the real conspirators, but unfortunately she was recaptured within a few hours and never got the chance to tell her story. Eventually, she apologized for her supposed actions to secure her release. No doubt, these faceless bastards had threatened her life every single day of her imprisonment until she cracked. Okay. Christ, you made your point. Anyway, we're not going to belabor our point anymore. But keep the preceding in mind the next time you hear a bunch of weird coincidences being used to bolster an evidence-free conspiracy theory. Given the assassination's centrality to so many stories of what it meant to be an American in the latter half of the 20th century, it's obvious that it would serve as a touchstone for art and media of all kinds. Knight notes that debating about the specifics of the flavor of conspiracy, or non-conspiracy you subscribe to, has become a shorthand for a way of arguing about the significance of Kennedy's legacy and the meaning of the 1960s more generally. Perhaps the first effort by an artist to contextualize the assassination took place the same evening as the assassination itself. The legendary, groundbreaking comedian Lenny Bruce went on stage as scheduled that night, but seemingly out of respect for the president, Bruce stood silently for a few minutes before saying, At this point, we should mention the fact that during the three years of the Kennedy administration, one of the most famous people in America was a comedian named Vaughn Mader, whose claim to fame was his remarkable impression of the young president. He released an anodyne satire album titled The First Family in 1962. It sold 7.5 million copies, the fastest-selling album before the rise of the Beatles. Seemingly nothing could stop the comet-like ascent of Von Mater's star. So long as Kennedy was in the public eye, his career was assured. Anyway, Fearful, what were you saying? Right. So, anyway, Lenny Bruce finally, bravely, stepped up to the mic, and in the total silence of the comedy club, said these unforgettable words. Boy, is Von Mater fucked. <gasps> yeah, that was ballsy. But he wasn't the last comedian who would comment on these events. Official paranoid strain hero Bill Hicks, a searing ahead-of-his-time performer who was unfortunately susceptible to a conspiracist mindset, had his own opinions on Oswald. And you can actually go to the sixth floor of the school book depository. It's a museum. They have the window set up to look exactly like it did on that day. And it's really accurate, you know? Because Oswald's not in it. It's true. It's called a sniper's nest. It's glassed in. It's got the boxes sitting there. And you can't actually get to the window itself. And the reason they did that, of course, they didn't want thousands of American tourists getting there each year going, No fucking way! I can't even see the road! Shit, they're lying to us! Fuck! As noted earlier in our interview, we've been to that museum too. But we don't think that the reason for keeping visitors out of the sniper's nest is any more nefarious than a natural history museum 
placing a fence around the T-Rex so you can't climb on its skeleton. Peter Knight previously quoted The Onion's genius headline for its fake Day of Assassination edition, but it's had some other gems as well, including... Poll. 68% of Americans believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted like asshole. And... Area man can remember exactly where he was, what he was doing when he assassinated John F. Kennedy. We are insanely jealous we didn't come up with both of those. In the world of music, there are tributes and references ranging from the sublime to the abysmal. Everyone knows the birds Roger McGuinn wrote, He was a friend of mine in honor of JFK. And hopefully everyone has heard Smokey Robinson or Marvin Gaye's haunting renditions of Abraham, Martin, and John. But the assassination was a touchstone for a wide range of transgressive punk and post-punk acts, including the legendary Misfits, the incomparable wedding present, and the phenomenal Camper Van Beethoven. Not to mention, of course, the entire output of the Dead Kennedys. Oh, and Seconds by the Human League offers a synth-heavy, still-danceable take on the same material. Then there's the Sondheim musical Assassins, in which all of the assassins of earlier presidents gathered to convince Oswald to kill the president rather than committing suicide. We're sure there's plenty to be gleaned from this, but we consulted the official Paranoid Strain guidance on musical theater, which clearly reads, Dana? Fuck musicals. Is the line right after fuck Nazis. So we don't have anything else to add here. There are also some well-intentioned but truly execrable efforts, led unfortunately by the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis with surely one of his worst songs ever, Lincoln Limousine. If he had ten million dollars, had the world right in his hand, but a twenty-dollar rifle took the life of this great man. He had a lovely wife, and two children seldom seen, a 
But they shot him in the backseat of the Lincoln limousine. Seriously, the man is a genius. A cousin marrying, potentially wife murdering genius, but seriously, have you heard what made Milwaukee famous? Chills, we tell you. Last episode, we touched on the ways that movies have dealt with assassination conspiracies in the examples of Manchurian Candidate and Parallax View. But President Kennedy, as the first leader truly adapted to the video age, was a touchstone for uncountable films, beginning with Primary, a 1960 documentary about his victory over Democratic rival Hubert Humphrey in Wisconsin in the lead-up to the presidential election, continuing with PT-109, a 1963 pre-assassination hagiography based on the young president's exploits as the captain of the eponymous ship during World War II. Since his death, there have been films that focused on various aspects of his presidency, including the Cuban Missile Crisis story, 13 Days. But most of the focus has been on his assassination, often as the endpoint of a silly subplot, as when Stanley Goodspeed retrieves a secret microfilm at the end of The Rock. Honey, uh, you want to know who really killed JFK? Or in the cult classic Bubba Hotep, in which an elderly Elvis, having ended up in a nursing home after faking his death, befriends an African-American senior citizen who claims to be a still-surviving John Kennedy, his brain having been transferred to a new body to fool the conspirators. That's where they took a piece of my brain. They got it back in D.C. in that goddamn job. I got a little bag of sand up there now. Jack, uh, no offense, but President Kennedy was a white man. That's how clever they are. They dyed me this color all over. There are more serious treatments, of course, memorably the 1990s Clint Eastwood thriller In the Line of Fire, where the main character, an aging Secret Service agent, is motivated to stop a presidential assassin due to his guilt over failing to stop Kennedy's murder decades earlier. Plus, it gives Eastwood some of his best post-Dirty Harry one-liners. Make a choice there, too. Do you really have the guts to take a bullet, Frank? I'll be thinking about that when I'm pissing on your grave. There's also Executive Action, a 1973 effort co-written by conspiracy author Mark Lane, a blunt instrument of a film that brings to life the imaginings of conspiracy theorists, as in this scene, where various shadowy figures try to convince a Texas oil man to fund their scheme by outlining the horrors that would arise should JFK enjoy a second term. They have several hundred million dollars and some of the best brains on earth to carry through. They have put together a powerful coalition of big city machines, labor, Negroes, Jews, liberals, and the press that will make him unbeatable in 1964. Wait a minute, Professor. He's appointed Republicans to the Treasury, to the Navy. Another is head of the CIA. Brother Bobby worked on Joe McCarthy's committee. The old man is further to the right than I am. Ancient history, Harold. In the next few months, you're going to see JFK do the following. One, he's going to lead the black revolution instead of fighting it. Now, we all know what that means, don't we? Damn right, a white backlash. Federal troops backing up the blacks, blood in the streets. Two, he's going to try to put across a test ban treaty with the Russians. And three, he's going to try to pull out of Vietnam and turn Asia over to the communists. Ridiculous. The American public would never stand for that. 
Come on, Harold. Goddamned super genius and master of the documentary form Errol Morris did a wonderful short film for the New York Times about the legendary Umbrella Man, a figure in many conspiracy theories whose opening of an umbrella as the president passed, caught on the Zapruder film, was supposedly a signal to the many imaginary teams of shooters to initiate their violent business. Only, you know, it wasn't that. Well, I asked that the Umbrella Man come forward and explain this, right? So he did. He came forward and he went to Washington with his umbrella and he testified in 1978 before the House Select Committee on Assassinations. The open umbrella was a kind of protest, a visual protest. It wasn't a protest of any of John Kennedy's policies as president. It was a protest at the appeasement policies of Joseph P. Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, when he was ambassador to the court of St. James in 1938-39. If you have any fact which you think is really sinister, hey, forget it, man, because you can never on your own think up all the non-sinister, perfectly valid explanations for that fact. But of course, the most important and iconic of all films concerning the shooting is the home movie Abraham Zapruder shot in Dealey Plaza on a pleasant Friday in November. We've surely referenced this enough throughout the episode, but we have one more minor addition before we move on. Night Notes and Buliosi seconds the fact that the film, which was for decades the urtext that conspiracists would use to bludgeon the Warren Commission supporters, to wit, Although each critic claimed to find incontrovertible evidence of a conspiracy in the Sapruta footage, their interpretations are usually at odds with one another. But there have been some modern developments by which a new generation of conspiracists, reacting to the ever more conclusive computer-aided reconstructions of the assassination, based on the film, which have only reinforced the evidence that all of the bullets came from the book depository. These conspiracists have decided that, rather than accept Oswald did it, they would prefer to presume that the film has been secretly altered. Reality denial is a powerful drug, my friends. Kennedy and assassination references remain pervasive in our culture. Counterfactual narratives from the X-Files to the Watchmen movie establish the bad guy bona fides of their mid-century villains by depicting them as secret assassins on the grassy knoll. Then, of course, there's the Simpsons' Mayor Quimby, a Kennedy archetype if there ever was one. Welcome, swappers, to the Springfield Swap Meet. Ich bin ein Springfield Swap Meet patron. Though, to be fair, 30 years in, he's never met a yellow, four-fingered Oswald archetype. Perhaps the most elaborate television reference is the legendary Seinfeld Magic Loogie parody, in which it's found that, based on their positions, both Kramer and Newman couldn't possibly have been hit by the same spittle. Up the rent. Mm-hmm. Then you say you were struck. On the right temple. The spit then proceeds to ricochet off the temple, striking Newman between the third and the fourth rib. The spit then came off the rib, made a right turn, hitting Newman in the right wrist, causing him to drop his baseball cap. 
The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you. Makes a left turn and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie. Books dealing with the assassination have included the high-end Pomo ruminations of Don DeLillo's Libra, in which the event starts out as rogue CIA agents planning an assassination designed to fail, hoping to blame the Cubans and convince the surviving Kennedy to renew efforts to kill Castro. In typical DeLillo style, the conspiracists find the mysteries of reality outpacing their plans. On encountering Oswald, they realize he's a patsy so perfectly suited to their existing scheme that the coincidence should be impossible. It's as if there are other forces manipulating reality toward a predetermined end. Their plan ends up turning into a genuine assassination without anyone ever seeming to make that deliberate choice. On the more pop culture end of the literary spectrum, modern-day Dickens' Stephen King attacked the topic of the assassination in his book 112263, which was subsequently turned into a TV miniseries that we haven't watched yet. In the book, a schoolteacher is shown a very specific gateway through time that allows him to travel to 1958, where he stays for five years, stops the assassination, and returns to the future to find his actions have had horrific consequences he could never have imagined. In both of these books, the assassination is seen as a predetermined, fated event, rocky shoals against which the efforts of men to change this historical turning point break apart. It's as if the sheer unlikeliness of it, Oswald meeting Jack, another Jack meeting Oswald two days later, is so important to reality as we now know it, that even wishing to change it is wishing to upend all of that reality. The assassination has even impacted the world of video games, most notably in the form of a simple, low-resolution, yet weirdly affecting game that caused a furor upon its release in 2004. Even then, JFK Reloaded's graphics were rudimentary, but the effect remains powerful. When the game starts, you have a first-person view out the sixth-floor window of the book depository as Kennedy's limo drives down Houston Street toward its fateful turn onto Elm. You can sight down a rifle and fire up to three shots, simulating Oswald's feet, with realistic reloading times and other factors included. Knight touches on the game and the controversy that surrounded it upon its launch. It was felt by many media commentators to be beyond the pale of decency in turning the death of Kennedy into mere entertainment. The game was later pulled, and the small Scottish company that made it collapsed. But the irony is that its digital simulation in fact served to confirm the Warren Commission version. First, that firing three shots in the available time was possible, and second, that in doing so, the single bullet theory was possible. The game's still available online. I missed twice on my first effort, but still killed the tiny simulated president with a truly upsetting shot to the head. It was an uncomfortable feeling, and I'm not the only one who felt this way. I don't actually understand the YouTube phenomenon of watching not particularly interesting people play games and then reacting to them in real time, but to be fair, I am a certified old, and therefore my opinion on whippersnappers and their hippity-hop raps and their consarned snapchats is not to be taken seriously. However, this guy's reaction when he suddenly and rather easily shoots a simulation of JFK in the head is very human and very upsetting. All right, there he is right there at the front. There's all his men. Now, I know the only thing I know about the JFK assassination is he was shot in the back. So, and I also think there was three shots. I don't know where the hell the other two shots went, but I guess it was about probably right here. Oh my god, I shot him in the head. I fucking shot him in the head. Oh my god. 
Okay. Okay, well that was it. Oh my god. Oh god, it's gonna go to replay. Oh my god. Ew. Oh shit. And so, having completed our thorough, but still far from complete, review of the assassination and its continuing impact on our culture, we prepare to close with a more personality-driven look at the two figures most responsible for the continued popularity of JFK conspiracies. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. Let's take one more run at Garrison and Stone. During the heyday of the Shaw prosecution, after the initial arrest but before everyone figured out the DA was full of shit, the six-foot-eight prosecutor known locally as the Jolly Green Giant became something of a folk hero. People liked the idea that there might be a more satisfying conclusion to the murder of the young president than an angry commie loner gunned down by another angry loner, and they liked the man who postured himself as the hero taking on the powers that be to get to the truth. He even had a song written in his honor by an artist calling himself Johnny Reb. A few years ago in the year of 63, a president was shot and he died. And the man accused of killing him was shot to death before he was even tried. Then the Warren Commission made up of what should be the greatest lawman of our time. Wrapped up the case. Said the assassination was the work of a one-watt mind. Keep a working big Jim. We hope you prove they're wrong. Keep a working big Jim. We're with you all day long. But behind the scenes, as we've already alluded, Garrison was running an office where stretching, bending, or even breaking the law was simply a part of doing business. And the activities of this office were a reflection of the strange and, in many ways, dangerous personality of the man in charge. Patricia Lambert offers a panoply of examples of Garrison's questionable fitness for office, as well as some much darker allegations that, while they have never been fully proven, are nonetheless deeply troubling. To start with, back in 1951, he was discharged from the military due to a severe and disabling psychoneurosis of long duration that had interfered with his social and professional adjustment. This condition predated his military service, and treatment would require a long-term psychotherapeutic approach. Unfortunately, there's no record of his having pursued this long-term treatment. What he did do, though, after taking office is channel this neurosis into crushing anyone who resisted him. He was particularly harsh on gay New Orleanians. We already saw this with his persecution of Shaw and Ferry. But early in his tenure, he focused on busts of French Quarter gay bars and their patrons. After one such sweep, a curious reporter discovered that the formal charge lodged against them was being a homosexual in an establishment with a liquor license. Which, even in the 60s, wasn't actually a crime. As part of his overall Mafia Kennedy connection, Moldea also interrogates some credible allegations that Garrison may have been deliberately protecting, or at least ignoring the impact of organized crime figures in New Orleans. During the various French Quarter vice sweeps his office undertook in the early 60s, for example, he somehow never raided any businesses associated with the notorious boss of New Orleans, Carlos Marcello. He also hilariously claimed that there was no organized crime in New Orleans. We'd be willing to entertain an argument that any other element of life in the city wasn't organized. But crime? Forget about it. If he was somehow in the pocket of Marcello, it seems weird that he would have built his quirky, nonsensical Kennedy case around the culpability of David Ferry, 
who definitely was a known Marcello associate. But Moldea suggests it was possible Garrison didn't know about this relationship. The FBI had that info, and the feds were no fan of Garrison and his nonsense. Regardless, there's absolutely no doubt that as the case progressed and Garrison gained ever more attention from the press, his behavior got stranger and stranger. For example, let's sit back as Gerald Posner explains Garrison's assertion that he had found Jack Ruby's unlisted number in Oswald's address book, which, if true, would be very important evidence. But it's not true? Come on. Per Garrison, it was written in code, which, thankfully, Genius Jim had been able to crack as follows. First, he assumed some Cyrillic, i.e. Russian language, letters in this book referred to a P.O. or post office box. He then, for reasons that exceed our understanding, converted those letters to W.H. and scrambled the numbers 19106 until he had the number 6901. Somehow. He then subtracted 1300 and got WH1-5601, Ruby's phone number. When asked how he came to subtract 1300, he said it was simply the block on Dauphine Street where Clay Shaw lived. When a reporter challenged him that his formula was completely arbitrary and clearly worked backwards to reach Ruby's number, he angrily said, Well, that's a problem for you to think over, because you obviously missed the point. We've said it once, we'll say it again. Numerology is the dumbest of all of the dumb mystical concepts. We're going to move on, but we need you to let us do this code nonsense just one more time. Garrison later took the number 1147 that appeared in Oswald's address book, multiplied it by 10, rearranged the numbers, subtracted 1700, and remultiplied. He said it resulted in 522-8874, the CIA's phone number in New Orleans, although he failed to mention it was listed in the phone book. In case you're not yet convinced that Garrison was a few peers short of a jury, here's another eyewitness account of his behavior from near the start of the trial. He took a taxi home one night. Reaching his destination, he threw money at the driver, dove into the bushes near his house, and hid there for several minutes, carefully scrutinizing his surroundings before sprinting to his front door. Among the forces he believed were arrayed against his office's quest for the truth was none other than the former Attorney General of the United States. He asserted that RFK had made very positive efforts to stymie the investigation. It is quite apparent to me, said Garrison, that for one reason or another, he does not want the truth to be brought out. As to his approach to that investigation, multiple reports, including from those on his own team, suggested Garrison would first decide on a suspect usually someone who fell into one or more categories he thought made them suspicious, including military service, unconventional religious views, etc. Then he would shuffle and reshuffle the evidence, such as it was, until he had a pattern that would kind of sort of fit the suspect he had chosen. As his former first assistant, Charles Ward, put it, Most of the time you marshal the facts, then deduce your theories. But Garrison deduced a theory, then he marshaled his facts. And if the facts didn't fit, he'd say they'd been altered by the CIA. Which is, you know, kind of a bad approach for a person with the powers of a district attorney. Oh, and he was a wife abuser. There were at least two incidents at the same restaurant. Brennan's, a wonderful place we absolutely recommend you visit. In the more famous one, Garrison got belligerent and drunk, eventually storming out after tossing his drink in his wife's face. Clay Shaw happened to be there. He harbored a suspicion that this, in fact, played into Garrison's later relentless persecution. Other reports suggested his treatment included serious bodily injury to his spouse. 
Just as disturbingly, Lambert relates a mostly forgotten story that Garrison fondled a 13-year-old boy at his athletic club. After decades of silence, she convinced the victim and his brother to give her their stories anonymously. And while we're far from qualified to fully evaluate them, in this age of Me Too, they sound extremely credible to us. The family decided not to pursue it, afraid for good reason that Garrison would arrange to ruin the lad's life. Others who knew Garrison have alleged he was basically a pedophile. So, even assuming he may not have known about all of these allegations when he decided to make Garrison the avatar of good and righteousness in his movie, why the fuck did Oliver Stone decide to focus his film on this shitbird and his prosecution? Lambert bemoans the fact that because of this movie... Garrison is also infused with the qualities and general star glow of Kevin Costner's past performances. The quiet courage and incorruptibility of Elliot Ness the spiritual true-heartedness of Dances with Wolves, the selflessness of Robin Hood. Garrison now embodies all that, too. Reinvented by Hollywood, he shines like a new penny. Giliosi is particularly incensed by the film and its effect on popular understanding of the assassination. In addition to his obvious revulsion as a fellow prosecutor at Garrison's unconscionable abuse of power, he's also livid about the fact that in the early 90s, those who knew nothing about the case and had formed no opinion, i.e. the nation's youth, which at that point included F.J., overwhelmingly bought Stone's cinematic fantasy, hook, line, and sinker, and even the consolation of the fact that Garrison's prosecution of the case had originally been a huge negative blow to the conspiracists back in 1969 is destroyed by the far greater impact that the Costner version of Garrison had on the public. Or, as he puts it, the film JFK has caused far more damage to the truth about the case than perhaps any single event other than Ruby's killing of Oswald. How did it cause this damage? Because Stone literally never presents a single piece of the overwhelming evidence that Oswald was the one and only shooter of Kennedy. So a murder case, the Kennedy assassination, where there's an almost unprecedented amount of evidence of guilt against a killer, Oswald, is presented to millions of moviegoers as one where there wasn't one piece of evidence at all. Regardless, Stone chose Garrison's prosecution and his book on the trail of the assassins as the basis for his film. But if you've seen the movie, especially the Mr. X scene with Donald Sutherland, you'll know that his real thrust is building a case for the essentially unbounded evil and bloodthirstiness of the military-industrial complex and its ravening desire to expand the war in Vietnam. In Stone's telling, JFK was the dashing young president who, learning from his Cuban misadventures in the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Missile Crisis, had decided to buck the Cold War trend and withdraw American troops from Vietnam. This, in Stone's telling, is the reason that the CIA slash FBI slash DOD slash whomever else had him killed. Knight has a lot to say on this topic, starting with the weird naivete about the pre-assassination United States that Stone's approach betrays. It's as if Stone believes in the ahistorical notion that America is an exceptional nation, a beacon of light to the world, that would otherwise have remained innocent and uncorrupted if it had not been for the evil intentions of either a conspiracy or a lone gunman ignores the possibility that there was already a long history of trigger-happy violence towards American presidents. To bolster that point, he refers to a second mid-60s commission, also convened by President Johnson, called the National Committee on the Causes and Prevention of Violence. Its report serves to remind readers that the event was not an aberration in the history of American politics, nor was Oswald a unique personality. 
but only the latest in a series of outbursts of political violence that had seen previous peaks in the 1820s, 1890s, and 1930s. A tradition of violence is rooted in American specific history and cultural myths of the frontier, vigilantism, direct action, independence, and individualism, not forgetting the easy availability of weapons. Yep, all of that sounds like the America we know. The commission notes that the U.S. has far more political violence than all other developed nations. From 1919 to 1968, the U.S. is the fifth most violence-prone behind Cuba, Korea, Iran, and Morocco. The only bright spot is that our domestic assassinations haven't fueled real political change, but rather just an increased willingness to believe conspiracy theories. Obviously. And as to Stone's overarching theory of the motivation behind his imagined conspiracy, that Kennedy was killed for adopting a dovish stance on Vietnam, several historians have pointed out that the speech Kennedy was to have given in the trademark at lunchtime on the 22nd of November reconfirmed his hawkish approach to the Cold War, with several key phrases designed to reassure local Texas arm manufacturers that their interests would not be ignored. Knight is not having Stone's dissembling assertions that his fast and loose approach to the truth is in service of a Rashomon-style interrogation of differing perspectives on reality. After all, the film dramatizes such apparent non-events as someone faking the famous photo of Oswald posing with his rifle, photos that his own wife attested were genuine. So what is Stone doing? He's making an impassioned argument for his Kennedy-was-going-to-get-out-of-Vietnam theory, facts be damned. By the way, that ex-Donald Sutherland character was based on a real guy, Fletcher Prouty, a former chief liaison officer between the military and the CIA's covert operations. This real-life figure story completely hooked Stone, but... Prouty's undoubtedly unique insider knowledge must be tempered by the fact that he has also had links with the Liberty Lobby, a far-right conspiracist group that inserts the Kennedy assassination into a wider story about the coming New World Order. Of course, the New World Order is a topic for another show. But don't worry, we have a theme song for it already. So, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that in spite of 66 years of insistence to the contrary, there's still no good evidence that anyone besides Lee Harvey Oswald was responsible for the assassination of JFK. And similarly... Killing Lee Oswald was all Jack Ruby's idea. And we've learned that however positive their original intentions may have been, all of the leading conspiracy voices, including Garrison, Mark Lane, Jim Mars, and Oliver Stone, eventually went from investigators to ideologues. And like ideologues of all stripes, at some point they started deciding that shading the truth in favor of what they saw as a larger truth was well worth the stain that it would put on their souls. What's the future of JFK Conspiracy? Perhaps, as Knight predicts, it is destined to fade into the historical background as those who lived through it gradually die off. But maybe there is something so pervasive, so influential, about the Kennedy conspiracy that it forms a truly unique, potentially immortal, version of the paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Follow us on Twitter at Paranoid Strain, email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and again, as always, we're equally indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super-duper website, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. 
Next episode, we take a quick breather and pound the nonsense out of the idea that we didn't land on the moon. Spoiler, one of our nearest and dearest believes in this conspiracy. Probable non-spoiler, it's the same guy who has doubts about 9-11. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
Harvey Oswald's watching the movie. Coming up the aisle is Jack Ruby. The lights come up, he starts to yell. I'm just a patsy, but war is hell. Soul on the grassy knoll. Oh, back into the left. Back into the left. It was all come film. Frank 313 shows the shot to kill. 